Hello and welcome to We Thought About Games, the podcast where games are looked at historically, fondly, and critically. I'm your host, Sid Menon, and tonight we're going to discuss Nier, an action RPG developed by Kavya for the Xbox 360 and PS3. Joining me are Mihal. Hi. And Zane. Hello. Since me has been on the show in two streams already, I'm going to ask Zane first. What's your experience with Nier? I played it way back when it first came out. I was curious about it because I had read the Dark Ids LP of Drakengard, and I wanted a really out-there story like in that, and I heard that Nier's gameplay was actually good, so I took a chance and pre-ordered it, <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. It was a pretty touching game for me at that time, because I was still in high school. Nice. Alright, how about you, me? I played it a few years after release. I had just been hearing about it. Initially, I wasn't interested in it, but as I heard more about it and spoiled myself on every aspect of the series, I got really into it and started playing it. And I've been kind of addicted to Nier since. <laughs> yeah, I played it, I believe it was two years ago, because I'd read the Hardcore Gaming 101's article on it and it sounded interesting. And despite the... Uh... Historical view of how good Kavya games are, I was kind of a bit of a fan, and I'd played Drakengard 1 and such, so I decided to give it a go. I knew some things about the game, one of the biggest sort of twists from the very end of a playthrough was revealed really early on, but no, I think it's probably one of the more emotionally affecting games I've played. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, it stands out to me as one of the best written games I've ever played few that I've actually, like, heavily emotionally connected with. I can admit that I cried when I got around to ending B. It was... it it hit me. <laughs> I cried a lot. I, I sort of sat in silence for a bit while uh, ending D played, and I didn't really think about anything else. Alright, so let's get started then. Zane, want to hit us with some development history? Okay, so... Uh, a little bit of backstory is that this game was originally going to be about fairy tales, the only remnant of that are some of the character names, as we'll see later on. Like, a lot of the non-major characters are named after various fairy tales. And the original plot was that the main characters would be visiting various fairy tale worlds and going through the plots of those and stopping the villains from reviving this big bad guy. And the reason that they wanted to revive him is because the fairy tale worlds were actually real worlds and the stories kept repeating over and over. And what the bad guy that was going to be revived was going to do was break the cycle and have the bad guys win because it was kind of messed up for the bad guys to just keep losing over and over again. And the 13 grimoires were going to be a part of this as well. They would gather these 13 grimoires and use that power to beat the big bad. But that kind of changed, obviously. And there are two versions of this game over in Japan, Replicant and Gestalt. And if I remember correctly... Nier is Yona's older brother in Replicant and her father in Gestalt. Yeah, that's correct. Replicant was only released for the PS3 in Japan, and Gestalt was released only for the 360, but we got Gestalt on both because they didn't think that the US would like a Brother Nier. And Brother Nier originally came first, and then Dad Nier was added later in development. They didn't really change anything about it, they knew that going in. They just wanted the perspective of Nier's relationships to be different between the two. Uh, the other thing is that 
they wanted this to be an RPG for older audiences, so there was a lot of blood and swearing in this game. And for that version difference, I remember a lot of people at the time who saw, like, oh, there's the pretty boy anime version for Japan, and then we get the grizzly dad version for America, but there's more to it than that. Not that the scripts are massively different, but, like, what certain things mean to characters and certain character developments would have more impact, or a different impact, depending on which version you're playing. Yep. The game starts with a, uh, looks to be, like, a modern city just covered in snow, and you see these two people duck into a convenience mart, running away from something, trying to find food and supplies, so it seems like, okay, so post-apocalyptic story and then the main character they're canonically known as near but you can name them whatever you want because people don't really call you by name he's attacked by these weird glowing shadow beings and you get to fight them off in a really quick combat section that's pretty much over before you know what's up he goes back to talk to his daughter and it looks like she's sick near is telling her not to touch this book which has been tempting him that he can save his daughter, Yona, if he gives it. But he refuses, and he gets attacked by more of these glowing beings. He takes a big hit, and so he has to use the book's power. Suddenly, he has the ability to use these incredibly powerful magic spells. He just uses a huge magic fist to punch these things into oblivion. And now you get an actual combat tutorial. I thought this is a really cool open, and I I have to say that what this opening does is more impressive when you replay it again or just take a second look at it. But I think my favorite part about it is that it introduces you to the fact that music in this game is dynamic because the official song on the soundtrack, the song used in the tutorial prologue, whatever you want to call it, it's only one song on the soundtrack, but it goes through a lot of different iterations, and I really like it a lot. Yeah, usually as combat picks up, more percussion comes in. It was a pretty interesting way to begin the game, definitely. I do like that it foreshadows a lot and connects the end of the story to the beginning of the story in ways that aren't quite typical. It's one thing where when you replay it, it actually feels more explained, whereas other games, they'll have foreshadowing early on, but then it takes so long. Like, I I complained about Tales of the Abyss in the last episode, but guess what? I'm going to do it again. There was some foreshadowing at the beginning of that game, but there were... 40 hours between when that happened and when it was paid off, so I couldn't remember it at all, whereas I could I could remember the tutorial. You can fight with, like, your melee weapon, which you know, has a big iron pipe, and also just use your magic with impunity, because there's a meter, but it refills super fast at this point, and the enemies are called Shade. You fight Shade after Shade after Shade, non-stop. You'll be leveling up as you do this. Every 10 levels you hit, you get a new spell, and so you can just try out all these magic abilities that are just ripping these things apart. Once you clear them out, you fight a boss, which mostly just has a lot of ranged attacks and heavy hitting close range attacks. And one thing that you're going to notice as we go through this is we're not going to discuss the combat in depth as much because, well, there's more mechanics than, say, Resident Evil. In that game, every enemy you encountered sort of changed how you approached it. In this one, you kind of approach enemies in the same way no matter what they are. Even though the combat's not amazing, I was totally fine with it the whole time I played the game. Like, it feels good enough to sustain most of the game. The only parts where it lets the game down are parts where the design of the game itself kind of let it down. 
The most interesting part about this game are not the regular enemies, it's the bosses. They had some interesting designs for the bosses, not to mention the bullet hell mechanics they introduced. Kinda poorly, but... Yoko Taro has gone on record saying that most of his favorite games are bullet hell games, and it's pretty easy to see that influence. And when you finish this boss off, a little gauge appears over its head, and you have to strike the head repeatedly to drain the gauge before time runs out, or it gets some of its health back. It's an alright mechanic. I mean, it's in some ways preferable to doing like a quick time event where something cool is happening, but you have to keep watching for button prompts. But it's also, you know, hit the immobile thing for a bit, or you have to do more fighting. I usually use magic on those parts. Mm -hmm. Generally, solve every problem in the game. When you defeat this thing, Yona passes out and gets covered in these weird black tendrils that look to be some kind of script. She reveals that because she felt bad that Nier was always protecting her, she touched the black book. It didn't give her powers... <laughs> And instead, she falls ill, and Nier shouts for help. And as the camera pans out, you get a view of the city covered in snow as the credits show up. And as what appears to be Tokyo Tower comes into view, something flashes on screen for just a second. And this is something we're going to talk about at the very end. I think Tokyo Tower only shows up in the Japanese version of the game. Different landmarks for different regions, which is a cool thing. Yeah. Though, I think the way this ties in with another game... <laughs> It was Tokyo Tower in that game. Yeah. Yup. I still do like that otherwise they largely attempted to make it so that the actual area the game takes place in is relatively ambiguous until you know the full backstory. Mm -hmm. Even the music is specifically designed to be ambiguous and not really tie it to any one location. And then you get one of the weirdest title cards... I had ever seen in a game that says 1,312 years later. It's really specific. It's like that for a reason, but then the first thing you get is a scene in a house, and it's sort of like a diorama or like a stage play scene, because it's like a cross-section of the house, and there's Nier and Yona in an old-style village. <laughs> Yona appears to be sick, but... It's hard to tell what's happened in the interim, or why they're here. But yeah, I head out to this village, and it had one of those moments in the game where I felt like I could tell it was going to be special, was the town music is just background music, but when you approach someone in the town square, she is singing along with it. Yeah, that was really cool, hearing that music shift for the first time, and it does it in a different way. I think when you go in the tavern, the song itself changes, or maybe it's just when you go indoors. Yeah. The soundtrack was done by Keiichi Okabe and Ryuichi Takata, and it is one of the best things about this game. I'd be hard-pressed to find someone who, even if they absolutely hated this game, which we got some emails to that effect, I don't know if I'd buy it if they said they also didn't like the soundtrack. I really can't think of a game with better soundtrack and not raise the hell out of the episodes. Also kind of odd that the only thing Keiichi Okabe has done before, or at least a couple of tracks he did before, he did the soundtrack for the Tekken games. <laughs> well, some of those have some qualities that elevate them. Hmm. The uh, person you approach who's singing the song is Devila, who is one of the village elders. She directs you towards her sister in the library, Popola, 
and you find out that this world is dying because people are being attacked by shades and disease and famine have wiped out a lot of the population. But Nier only cares about taking care of Yona. So he takes on odd jobs in the village. The way these side quests and stuff are explained feels a little more natural than other games, where you're not going to new places and just solving people's problems for them. These are the people you live around. I guess we should mention that despite Devla being a village elder, she's not that old. Devla and Popola are twins, and yeah, they look much younger than Nier as the father character. But Nier's been unable to cure Yona, but he's looking for a cure. He says he needs money, though it's not really clear what he would do with it. You get the sense, too, that the space in this game is really abstracted. Because in some cases, like, oh, deliver this thing to another person for me. Even if you were extremely lazy, it's a one or two minute walk to get to that person. But that's because, you know, the space is just much smaller, so you don't actually have to run for miles to deliver something to someone. And admittedly, with some of the quests, it does feel like you have to run miles. <laughs> no jumping! <laughs> one of the first quests actually tasks you with going out to the uh, Northern Plains area and just getting some meat from some land. This is actually a bit of a preview for one of the things you'll be doing in this game when it comes to getting resources. You either be killing animals and harvesting their bodies for resources, or you will find little glowing harvest points and just take stuff from them. And this takes a little longer than I'd like. I like a little prompt for each one. I found if on your first run-through areas you just grab everything you can, you won't have to do it later, so you can just sort of breeze through. Unless you're doing something specific, like upgrading weapons. Yeah. After you get those resources, you head back to the village and shades pop up, and you just have a quick fight with them, but it turns out that this is the closest they've ever been to the village. They're all small shades, too. Some of them drop stuff like school books. Nier tells Yona about this flower called the Lunar Tear. Really good girls find it and it will grant them any wish. Yona runs off to the Lost Shrine, which is a distant area that some of the villagers know about, but not a lot of people go there because it's dangerous. Dungeons in this game really don't feel that much different from the field areas, though the music in the Lost Shrine is pretty good. Yeah, it definitely is. It is also worth noting that in all the dungeons in the game, they play with perspective and try to have it represent different styles of games. Yeah, in this case, the Lost Shrine has overhead view block pushing puzzles, which, in terms of first impressions, you'll think, oh no, another one of these, but it's not like Vagrant Story or something where you're doing this a lot. It's the gimmick of this dungeon specifically. Yeah, and I mean, the puzzles are not hard at all. You're not taking hours trying to figure out what the puzzle is. You do get to see Nier's excellent block-pushing animation. He actually has one of the nicer ones I've seen in the game, because he'll push it for a bit, then transition to using his back, and then go back to using his arms. Another mechanic that you'll see at this point in the game, though, is when you kill enemies, you'll get, like, random drops of tutorials. <laughs> which is pretty cool. I guess. It's not really in any other game I've ever seen. It doesn't affect let you sort of pick up more advanced techniques as you go, because it's not like you'll never get them where you have to like hunt them down. They're not rare. You're probably going to get all of them by the time they become relevant. 
it does let you focus on what you know, and then when you get this thing, you can open up your journal and read it. But the only aspect of combat that really you'll learn at this point, you don't have magic or anything that was in the tutorial section, you just have a one-handed sword. You can just do a quick five-hit combo with square, or you can press triangle and you'll do this like elbow thrust move, and one of the tutorials will key you into something. Like, I figured it out. But the elbow thrust move doesn't do any damage, and it's supposed to break guards, but enemies don't guard that much at this point in the game. So what you can do with it, though, is instead of doing the full five-hit combo, you do the four and then the elbow thrust, and it'll reset, so you can just keep attacking. You can also do a cool charge hit, and the charge hit animation is different for each hit in your combo. It's pretty good, but also I didn't use it a lot. Me either. Because you can just, in that space of time, do more hits. When you advance the top of the shrine, you will see a uh, book, this little force field, and Yona will be on an altar. So you hit this little field around the book, and it comes to life and starts talking. This book calls himself Grimoire Vice. He will always call himself Grimoire Vice. Never Vice, always, always Grimoire Vice. He will get mad at you if you call him anything else. Yeah, Grimoire Vice is voiced by Liam O'Brien, who gives this really haughty, holier-than-thou performance that could have been, like, really annoying, but I think they didn't go too far with it. And he's pretty well balanced out by the rest of the cast, so when he's being a douche, the other characters will straight up call him out on it. And it especially works with Nier, because Nier is voiced by the inimitable Jameson Price, who is one of my favorite voice actors in all the video games, pretty much. <laughs> Even his mission briefing voice, which is pretty straightforward in Ace Combat 5, just like, mm, that's the perfect mission briefing voice. Thank you, Jameson Price. <laughs> He's a really good voice actor, and you mentioned Tails earlier, he was a Tails character, he was a Malik in Tales of Graces, and he was great in that. Oh hey, that's the one I own. Clearly I chose correctly. So Vice is able to gain powers from you killing shades. The blood from them will like flow into Vice, and you'll hear these weird like reverse spoken lines. Vice says that this blood makes him recall powers he had. And he'll learn Dark Blast, which is one of the first spells you got in the tutorial, which is just like a regular flow of bullets. The main advantage is that you can use it while you're moving, otherwise it's not very good and it will get replaced after not too long. Yeah, I almost never used it unless it was absolutely required. And there are a few times where it is. Also, it doesn't drain your magic faster than it recharges, so you can almost use it with impunity. Once you get Dark Blast, you get attacked by these twin statue guardian lances that have uh, defensive barriers you have to break. After you've beaten one of them enough, you will get the thing that replaces Dark Blast, which is the spell Dark Lance, which lets you charge up and aim much stronger projectiles. It also looks really cool. Oh yeah. Yeah, it also goes into slow motion while you're charging, so you have more time to aim. It does everything you need, and it works really well. So, in cutscene, you will use Dark Lance to just utterly annihilate these statue things. 
then you'll head back with this book and Yona in tow, but she's been taken by those black tendril things that you saw in the tutorial section, and near and Vice identified this as the Black Scrawl, which is apparently the disease that's been afflicting everyone. You head back to the village, and now that you have Vice with you, there's a new thing you can look at in Nier's house, which he says is the diary of his wife. This only shows up if you have the DLC, and this is what that is. It actually doesn't reveal a lot about the story, like, unless you know all those details already about the wider story that's outside the game, this won't make a lot of sense. Yeah, the main thing it does is it gives you really overpowered weapons and costumes for the different party members. Also, the game already has weapons that are completely overpowered, so the weapons the DLC gets just kind of throws it over the edge. But don't get any ideas at this point in the game, because the basic enemies in the very first room of the DLC can kill you in one hit and it'll boot you out. Yep. You can take a peek at it if you want, but there's just no way you're going to beat even the first third of it at this point in the game. I think it's also worth mentioning that in the DLC you play as Brother Nier instead of Father Nier. Yeah, that's right. When you enter it, you'll be in like a white room with a single other door to go to, but you'll be the brother. And in the Japanese version, it's the inverse. Music remixes in the DLC are really good. Yeah, the boss theme of the DLC and just everything else about it. It's all really good. Yeah. <laughs> Devo Popo and a few of the other songs are some of my favorite in the game. But outside of that, you can talk to Devla, and she will actually explain what the song The Ancients is. It mentions an evil black book and a white book that will stop it. And now Nier is convinced that Grimoire Vice is this white book, and that his power could save the whole world, which is a lot more hope than he had for I don't care about the world, and I'm just going to cure my daughter. It gives you your main quest for the first half of the game. Popla explains that the magic spells you got are these things called the sealed verses, and you need to collect all of them, and this is part of the song, and this is part of what will help the white book defeat the black book and save the world. You also unlock side quests at this point, which are, like I mentioned, the odd jobs you'll do for the people in the village. And they actually, even if it is a minor fetch quest, what's nice is that Vice and Nier will have like a back and forth about it. Yeah, the back and forths between Vice and Nier are some of the best parts of the side quests. Every one of the side quests has a pretty in-depth backstory to it that kind of helps build the world to the game instead of just kind of being there for no discernible reason. Well, some of the side quests are for no discernible reason, other than to frustrate the player. <laughs> That's true. Though the two primary side quests of interest are, one uh, involves just fetching some seedlings from someone, and this unlocks the ability to use the plot next to Nier's house to farm, which pretty much involves laying fertilizer, laying seeds, and then in 24 real-life hours, they will have flowered and you can harvest them. And usually sell them. There are some other things you can do. I ignored gardening. I never even touched it. Like, I never thought about it. I just avoided it completely. <laughs> I used it for one specific purpose, which is that if you grow a field full of rice, you can sell it for a lot of money. So I was like, well, I'm just gonna stockpile this up, and then I can buy the weapons in the village and everywhere. And then I did it again, and that's when I was flush with cash forever and realized I didn't need any more money. You can actually breed flowers, besides the two you can buy in the stores. 
one of the major focuses of the gardening is to breed a lunar tier. Yeah, I didn't realize you could do that even though I actually bothered with farming a little bit, so I didn't know to pursue it. I think it just gives you an achievement. Yep. <laughs> there is really no reason to ever touch the gardening in the game, and it's basically one of the most annoying aspects of the game. <laughs> <laughs> but there is another quest that involves you killing a boar, and after you get the item you need from that boar and you talk to the quest giver, you can now ride on boars in the field areas, and more importantly, you can drift. Yes, it's so great. And it's actually useful to get around. Yeah, it really speeds up the travel time. Also, when you fight enemies, in addition to those random tutorial drops, you'll start getting things called words which you can assign to actions and weapons and spells in Grimoire Vice, which now like sort of replaces your old menu, and it will add on abilities to them. And these are kind of boring. Yeah, there's usually only one option. It's basically, oh, make my sword hit harder. Make my magic deal more damage. Make me get more items. There are some that add like elemental effects onto your attacks, but I didn't really see a need ever to do that. This game doesn't have much of an elemental weakness or strength thing going at all. <laughs> I'm trying to remember situations where that even comes up. There are things with elemental weaknesses in this game? I don't know. I, there are elemental magic effects. <laughs> like we mentioned, the combat is good enough, but there's a lot that's kind of extraneous. Oh yeah. Your next destination is the Airy, which is a really cool village. It's got a lot of bridges and these individual metal huts that are just all situated, suspended. All built into, like, the sides of a large canyon, and it looks really cool, and the atmosphere is really oppressive because of the music. On the other hand, I hated the hell out of the area because it was such a pain to walk through. Going up is annoying, but luckily the game's pretty forgiving about letting you jump. Like, if you fall from a high height, you'll take a little damage, I think. But it's faster to get around, so it's not like invisible walls generally blocking your way in this game. You have to make a delivery to the town, but the villagers won't come out of their houses, and they all are really afraid of outsiders and keep comparing you to someone named Kaine, who, when you leave the village, you'll see a hut outside with a wreath of lunar tears. It'll turn out that they're hers, because she attacks you to keep you away from that wreath. She appears to glow like she's a shade, but only partly. Also, uh, she's wearing a very interesting, shall we say, outfit. She's not so much wearing battle lingerie as just straight up regular lingerie. Yeah. There's something about her character that you could say it makes sense, but you could have also handled that a billion other ways. Yeah, Ridley could have been handled better. Yeah, I agree. At least the other characters kind of point out that it's a really, really strange way to dress. Though, to be fair, one of the weird, like, interactions they include is that in another area, Vice will give Kaine crap for wearing underwear and saying, like, oh, it must be gross. And she's like, no, I have a bunch of different pairs and I wash them every day. <laughs> but you have a, a quick boss fight with Kaine, it's nothing too special, but partway through, you get attacked by a giant shade that appears to be sort of a lizard with these gross pustules on its neck and a 
hand tail, and it barfs out orbs. Kind of seem kind of pissed at Nirbrahma's touching that Reba Lunar Tears. She is furious at this thing. Being furious is kind of base. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> she also swears love. The first thing that happens when you turn on the game, the intro movie starts up, is one of her lines from later in the game of her being really pissed off at Vice, and she swears a lot. Almost every other line of dialogue of her, if not more. Yeah, kind of is voiced by Laura Bailey, who does a fairly good job with a really ridiculous script to at least make it sound like an actual person who swears too much. When it comes to Laura Bailey swearing, she makes that an art form. She's <laughs> one of my favorite voice actresses. She's moved on to mainstream stuff now, though. Actually, I saw an interview with her and I was thinking kind of might come up once, but apparently her favorite character to play is Fetch from Infamous, Second Son and First Light. So that actually did get me more interested in that game than anything else I heard about those. She was also the boss in Saints Row 3 and 4. Nice. Yeah, I feel like most people choose her for the female boss voice. I mean, it's straight up the best choice. You damage the shape, but you don't end up actually killing it. But you do get the other magic ability that's probably going to become your mainstay, Dark Hand, which is the giant magic smashing fist from the intro. Dark Punch. Punch big. Charge it up, you punch with even more hands. Yeah, it's pretty great. And the game knows that Dark Lance and Dark Hand are the best spells because those are the ones that your use is in, like, every cutscene. You know, I never really thought about it, but it's true. <laughs> After that sequence, then you're headed off to another town named Seafront, which actually feels a lot more developed and hopeful and modern than the other towns. Yeah, yeah it's a trade hub. The establishing shot of this town actually shows an old lady named Ursula who's climbing up a lighthouse, complaining. But before you go meet her, there's a rather infamous minigame that you can get into here. The fishing. Oh boy. Yeehaw. I don't know how fishing works. I caught the one thing I needed to catch to progress the game, and that's it. The game took pity on me, and it auto-caught it for me because I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> yeah... One of the big problems is that it tells you to fish at a certain location, and there are two locations in the area that fit, and the first one that you'll see is the wrong one. So a lot of people have trouble ever progressing past that point. A lot of people have trouble looking at the big red X on their minimap. Yep. Yeah, there is actually a marker on the minimap, but... I could see why people would get confused, but also, after I like had beaten the game, I thought, oh, there's a confusing fishing part, is there? I, I don't think I ran into that. <laughs> I just sort of got what this game was expecting of me. Yeah. We mentioned the puzzles in the Lost Shrine are really easy. Most other puzzle games I cannot play because I cannot get into the heads of the puzzle designers at all. But the uh, big plot in Seafront, which is not too much, is that there's a post office here. And a lot of the quests in this town revolve around that. And also uh, Ursula, the lighthouse lady, tasks you with getting her mail. And you can read everyone's mail also. But she has been exchanging love letters with someone. And that plot will finish out later? Yeah, I think before the end of the first half. Though also, in the tavern in the village, Devil will be singing in the bar. And 
the tavern keeper will mention that Popola and Devil used to sing together. So you have to go to Seafront to get the only drink strong enough to get Popola buzzed so that she and Devla can sing together. And the reward for the quest is pretty much hearing them sing together. It's a really nice side quest with just a nice musical reward. Also, the thing I remember about the drink is that it has rat tails in it. The game asks you to get rat tails. Oh yeah, also, you will get these side quests at this point that are parcel delivery quests for fragile objects. If you get hit during these side quests, the package breaks and you have to go back and get another one. Also, these quests spawn the greatest number of shades on the way to your destination. It's basically the egg quest in Monster Hunter if it was a thousand times worse. Yeah, these quests were pretty frustrating when you can't do anything to avoid attacks. Luckily, there's like two of the game. That sounds right. Yeah, after this, the other major area is the junk heap, where these two brothers operate a weapon shop so that Nier could get better weapons and upgrade his own. Yeah, that's the big thing. You couldn't upgrade weapons before this point. This is mostly what you use materials for outside of completing quests. But to get materials to upgrade with, the brothers ask you to go into the junk heap and retrieve materials. Also, the brothers run the junk shop with their mother, but she's been missing. So you go all the way to the bottom of the junk heap, and you'll encounter the next boss, which is a giant face. Basically, you face and boss. But after you beat the boss, you'll find the mother with another man. This is one of those moments that would probably get played for a massive amount of drama in another game, but when you go back to the junk heap, you can tell Jacob, the uh, older brother, what happened. His younger brother Gideon will just leave after he hears that his mom's dead. And Jacob will mention that, yeah, he knew, actually, that she was seeing this other guy and that she felt stressed by her responsibilities and everything. It was unexpected for me <laughs> to see a quest resolved that way. I think it's worth mentioning that the mother's name was Blue, and the guy's name is Carlo, and they're both references to Pinocchio. <laughs> yeah. You actually have to head back to the airy again, where magic-resistant shades have appeared. So these ones have like a little energy field around them. Really, the only twist is you can only use melee attacks on them. But they're not that difficult, so it's not a huge deal. Yeah. But then the giant shade that you fought after the boss fight with Kaine reappears, and this time it runs into the airy, and you have a real like set-piece battle, actually, where after you defeat each phase, you will smash it into a wall, and it'll run along, and it's just tearing parts of the airy apart, which is really for a game that's been very grounded and simple and small scale. The first time this boss attacked you, you only fought half of it. But seeing this thing tear through is really pretty striking. Yeah, it was a really good boss fight. That's when you finally kill it, it speaks to Kaine in the voice of her grandmother? Just thankfully something that gets explained in-game later. But at this point, Nier can't hear the grandmother's voice or anything, so he doesn't know any of this is going on. But she seems ready to give him, but then relents because the Shade says something that her grandma would never say, and they impale it on a beam. Basically, the Shade tells her to give up. Then you get a scene where it's weird right after Kaina decides to not give up. She mentioned specifically that she wouldn't give up in her quest for revenge, but now that this thing is dead, she's laying down and ready to die. You're going to live, Kaine. 
Me. Live. What for? What? I had my revenge. Now it's over. Oh, now see here. This is rich. Vice. We help you in some mad quest for vengeance, and now you think to bid us adieu. How can a fighter so skilled be cursed with such a thick head? A true warrior would fight. They would give all in the service of their friends. Friends? Yes. You and I are friends now. Uh, see here, that was hardly the point. Then what is the point? Um... Yes, we're friends now. <laughs> the weird thing about that is it seems really strange the way Nier says it. In a sense, that's because it's also the same way that the brother Nier character says it, who's much younger, I think younger than Kaine is. But you get the sense that Dad Nier actually doesn't have any friends, because he doesn't seem to. <laughs> yeah. Well, he does basically seem really obsessed with Yona. He's a really hardened guy, so it makes a lot of sense, actually, that he'd find a kindred spirit in Kaine. Then you unlock another spell that's called Dark Phantasm, which sends out a copy of Nier to attack someone, and I never found it useful. It's good for when you're dealing with lots of little enemies. Oh yeah? Because it can hit all of them. You know that thing Wolf Link could do in Twilight Princess? That's basically what it is. You know what else is good for lots of small enemies? Dark Hand. Fair enough. Yeah, pretty much the spirit of the Dark Hand or all you need to finish the game. Oh yeah, this is also when Kaine finally joins your quote-unquote party. Having party members around affects very little in this game. They're almost never actually, like, fighting with you. It seems like they're present because it makes sense for them to be there, but honestly, they're in your party more for the purposes of the story. Yeah, their AI is not that good. You'll see it as you're fighting this boss that Kaine's hits do almost no damage. Yeah, I don't remember it ever seen any of the allies actually do any significant amount of damage to anything. You get an ally who actually does something noticeable next, but first, Kaine actually thinks the people in the city of Facade might have a cure for the Black Scrawl, which is the first real lead you've got in a long time. But the reason Kaine knows about Facade is she saved one of the kids from a pack of wolves, so they owe her a debt. And you'll fight wolves and scorpions in this desert area until a shade-possessed wolf makes the wolves retreat. They're probably the most interesting thing to fight because they're actually really aggressive, so they're kind of dangerous, actually. Yeah, they're definitely the biggest threat in the first half of the game. The scorpions can poison you, which is kind of bad because the poison does take down your health a little quickly, but it's... Like, the only thing I can remember poisoning you in the book. Yeah, I honestly forgot that poison was in this game until you brought it up. To be honest, I also forgot. <laughs> Most of the enemies in the game were in shades, so... Yeah. Facade's an interesting village. It's got a pretty complex layout that requires you to actually use, like, your double jump and mid-air dodge to get around. Oh yeah, and it has the fast travel system that doesn't actually make you go through the town any faster. Nah, you can just ride a little sand skiff. The DLC does have a minigame with that. Oh yeah, the rail shooting segment. <laughs> yeah, but you can't understand what anyone's saying in the village because they speak a different language. But eventually you bump into a young girl named Fira, and she can't speak, 
but she uses hand signs, and eventually Vice is able to discern the local language from her hand steps. And after that point, you can just talk to everyone normally. Yeah, the way the game denotes that they're speaking a different language is everything they say is in parentheses. <laughs> yeah, and there's just a ton of rules in this city. It's a city of just rules upon rules upon rules. She says a rule that's in the tens of thousands, I think. I like Fira's tour. It's really cute. She says in response to all these complaints Nier has about rules, rules do not exist to bind you. They exist so you may know your freedoms. And with that, you try to see the King of Hassan, but it turns out he died for the Black Scrawl and they didn't cure it. But the prince has gone missing, so Kaine uses the debt that she's owed, because it turns out she saved Fira from wolves. That debt to the city she uses to gain permission to go to the temple that the prince ran off to, because otherwise, with the rules, only nobility would be allowed in, so they are not allowed to rescue their own prince. And this takes you to a Zelda dungeon. Yeah, it even has the theme when you find an item. It makes a lot of very direct references to Zelda. Yeah, it's really, really great. The twist of this dungeon is that the rules that they mention in the city are in effect explicitly here because each room will prevent certain actions. We written it some way like Leaping Rabbit, so in some rooms if you jump you'll be reset to the beginning. So these are sort of puzzles too, and in most cases you just need to feel out the room to get the solution. They're interesting puzzles though, they're not your typical puzzle. Yeah. You find the prince who tries to be self-righteous but he inadvertently breaks a rule and gets captured by a cube thing. Kaine also breaks rule and gets captured by a cube, and once you finish the rest of the rooms, you fight a giant cube man. Yeah, I love I love the cube boy. Also, he gets a unique boss track, which is a shame because it's really good. Yeah, is that the one God's Bound by Rules? Yep. Which is a really cool track name for a man made of cubes. <laughs> Because that's also the first boss of Gunstar Heroes in <laughs> Sega Genesis. Oh, yeah. Bravo, man. But once you do enough damage to the Cube Man, it turns into the spinning laser cube frame. The Cube Man's name is... I'm probably pronouncing this wrong. It's Shariar? Shariar. Yeah, from the uh, Thousand One Nights. Yep. After you beat the giant Cube Man, this is when the Zelda theme comes in, because the prince finds a mask, which is what he's looking for, and he lifts it in the air, and it's exactly the pose from the 3D Zelda games. I bust out laughing at that part. <laughs> Honestly, at this point in the game, I expected to contain a lot more stuff like this, but it's a one-off. Well, the game imitates a lot of different styles of games and makes references to them. Yeah, but this is the most explicit, and even the other references do not get as explicit as this. Yeah. But the reason the prince was after that mask is it was the king's mask. And it turns out that quote about rules existing to know your freedoms was from the king. Near, because he is owed a debt, asked them to make a rule zero that lets people vote to change rules they dislike. I always felt that that's a little weird because it seems like it would mess up their culture. Yeah. Yeah. Then you get the Dark Wall sealed verse, which I never used, ever. Yeah, I can't remember ever using it. Me either. It's supposed to be defensive, but you can dodge and block in this game. You're almost never in a position where you're seriously threatened. Apparently, if you charge it to its max level, it absorbs magic, which might be useful? 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of a point, though, where you're under fire from heavy magic and have time to charge up a spell all the way. Also, if you're under heavy fire from magic, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, because you can just slash at the bullets or jump over them. Yeah. But after this section, Nier has a dream of a young boy telling him there's a sealed verse in the Forest of Myth. And Popolo receives a letter from the mayor of the forest that is really, like, it says dream a lot in it. It just sort of descends into nonsense. And when you go to the forest, the mayor will tell you that everyone in the village has been cursed with something called the Death Dream, which turns out to be a text adventure. Yep, it's so great. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah, then you have these sections where you read text and then you make a choice. You have to answer riddles and stuff. There's a bunch of people in the village. You only have to release a couple and also the mayor. But... If you finish them all, you will get one of the best one-handed swords in the game, and it'll be the best one for a long, long time, which is a katana called Faith. Oh yeah, you get some sweet Hanzo steel. Yep, and the dreams are kind of interesting. There's one that takes place in a desolate city, but Nier doesn't know what a modern city is, so the way he describes things is a little different. And you have to answer a riddle, which is one of those, like, B tells the truth about A, but C tells the truth about both. And I'm really bad at those, so I guessed the wrong answer of the three choices twice. And so I had to sit through the whole thing three times before I could finally do it. The other dream I remember was there being, like, a flooding castle, and you have to get out of the castle in a certain number of quote-unquote turns. The weird thing about that is some of the rooms, if you end up seeing them at all, then you're too far to make it out alive. So you should never see those descriptions. Also, if you die in that one, you actually die. <laughs> Making it the most fatal thing in the whole game. <laughs> the death dream is some serious business. But the most interesting detail you get from this is the mayor says in his dream, he saw near, but not as himself. For clearing this area regularly, you get Dark Execution, which is a spell that impales things on a bunch of spikes that pop out of the ground. It attacks all around you, which never happens. <laughs> happens in the tutorial, but it doesn't really happen in the main game. It looks really cool, though. Yeah, it does. But then when you go home, you find out Yona has been writing letters to a young boy who lives in a mansion. You actually might have passed this on the way to Seafront and checked it out. You weren't able to go inside. But when you enter the courtyard, there's these creepy spider shades. And also, the screen turns black and white, and the music cuts out. And this section is a reference to Resident Evil. I love the Resident Evil mansion. <laughs> it's kind of a shame because the music's actually like pretty emotive and good. But then, also in this segment, like... The young boy's butler will greet you at the door, and that's how you're actually allowed in, but he vanishes. Kaine says she'll wait around, and you go to look for the butler, then Kaine vanishes. You're just running through these hallways, and little tiny jump scares happen, and Vice and Nier are just like, ah! Also, all around the mansion are a bunch of, like, people who are statues. Yeah, they're very lifelike stone statues with pained looks on their faces. And when in media has that ever not been because they've been petrified? <laughs> but eventually, you meet the young boy who's the master of the mansion named Emil, who is blind but can pick up where things are and what's going on with a incredibly strong sense of hearing. And it turns out 
that he can't look at things because they turn to stone when he looks at them. But yeah, the final seal verse is hidden in the library. So you have a boss fight with a red book that looks suspiciously like the black one from the intro and also Vice, but it's dead silent. Well, it laughs. Yeah, but it attacks you with its pages. And when you defeat it, you get the final sealed verse, Dark Warlord, which I also never used. Same. I think Emil, uh, doesn't he help you out in this section? Yeah. Yes, uh, Emil actually can petrify things when he looks at them, which kills them instantly. And it makes him the most useful party member. That's pretty striking, actually, to see it in action when you first start fighting, and he just kills something while you're still slashing away. And then on the way out, Kaine has, like, she whispers something to Emil and has a heart-to-heart about being a freak because she thinks she is one, and Emil feels that he is one as well. He's a really sad, lonely little child, fancy mansion with fancy clothes. Emil is a very good boy. <laughs> he ends up being kind of like the conscience of the party. He's just adorable. He's my favorite character. Yeah, he has been really hardened the way that Kaine and Nier have, and he's not very haughty like Vice is. He's not a magical talking book. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also around this point in the game, the loading screens up to this point have been excerpts from Yona's diary, which is mostly stuff about it snowed, so Dad said he'd stay with me till the snow passed, so I hope it never stops snowing, or Dad said Devil is put together in all the right places, and I don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) But You'll also start getting these ones that are just inverse color and they look really stark and mention things about the walls of Jericho being torn through and reports to something called the World Purification Committee. Since these appear at random, like you can't really quite piece them together, but it gives the suggestion that these are from another time and are talking about something that you also wouldn't understand without the extended material. The very massive amount of backstory in this game. When you get back home and you're like, you've collected all this stuff, the first thing that Yona says to Nier is to not hate her for being sick, which was really pretty sad. It's not the first game to do that, like Silent Hill 2 is the one that comes to mind for that, but it's performed really well here, I think. The acting is really great, and it's just written in a way that feels kind of real. Yeah, the strength I'd say for Nier when people would ask what's good about it I'd say it's emotionally genuine for a Japanese RPG in a way that a lot aren't. Not that a lot of them wouldn't have things that could affect you emotionally, but in a lot of cases, the emotions of those are extremely heightened. Yeah. And, you know, it just pushes things in a really far direction, whereas this one is is pretty small in scale, considering the plot still involves powers that can save or end the whole world. It feels like it doesn't try to manipulate you emotionally by just doing really over-the-top things, but just building characters you can connect with and who seem like people and not characters, and then having them respond in a way that makes sense for them. Yeah, 8-4 did a really good job localizing the script for this game. Yeah, I do have some qualms with the localization, but I'll get to that. Yeah. But at this point, Nier's determined to find Grimoire Noir, the Black Book. 
because he has all the sealed verses, he's all set to save the world and cure everybody. But before he can visit the library, a meal collapses at the town gate, which, remember, space in this game is abstracted, so this frail young kid ran all this way, and he just says that something's coming, and a giant tentacled shade crashes through the town gate. The fight in the area was pretty destructive, this looks to be even more so, as you fight this thing as it is smashing through the town. Yeah, this thing is absolutely massive. On top of that, it's just like a ridiculously long fight compared to the other ones. Yeah. It goes on and on and on, and it changes more and more as you go. Even though you can fight it and weaken it, it still breaks through, wrecks a lot of the town, and then heads straight for the library where Nier asked Yona to run off to, in case anything attacked the town. So you have to stop it from reaching the library. You kill it mostly, but the head comes off and breaks into the library. You can't kill it, so it gets pushed into the basement. In the midst of all of this, Kaine is trying to hold the door. The Shadow Lord and Grimoire Noir appear. And the Shadow Lord looks a lot like Nier. And Grimoire Noir is the black book from the opening. And this is the point where you realize the person you're playing in the tutorial is this guy. I did not realize that because I was too caught up in all the events at the time. It was in the back of my head the whole time I was playing. Is what happened in those 1,312 years. And whatever it was turned the prologue near into this guy. And you know he's called the Shadow Lord because Grimoire Noir, who was voiced by the incredibly good at being villains DC Douglas, who we mentioned in the Resident Evil episode, ended up voicing Wesker, the most evil man. He is the voice of Grimoire Noir, and he tries to absorb Vice and says that their reunion with the Shadow Lord is what will bring this conflict to a close. We shall become as one, you and I. Since you rotten booker, you're gonna be sorry. Maybe I'll rip your pages out one by one, or maybe I'll put you in the goddamn furnace. How can someone with such a big smart brain get hypnotized like a little bitch, huh? Oh, Shadow Lord, I love you, Shadow Lord. Come over here and give Vice a big sloppy kiss, Shadow Lord. Now pull your head out of your goddamn ass and start fucking helping us. I am one with the Shadow. <sighs> bitch. It requires them to also give up Yona. It's worth mentioning that DC Douglas completely steals the scene he's in. As he's wont to do. But you have a boss fight against Grimoire Noir here, and unlike the fight with the book in the library, in trying to absorb Vice, Noir has taken the sealed verses from him, so you have to fight him and get them back over the course of the boss fight. Otherwise, it's pretty much the same. Shadow Lord tries to spear Grimoire Vice, and Nier jumps in to take the hit for him. Shadow Lord and Grimoire Noir fly off with Yona, and because Kaine is still holding the door trying to keep that shade in, the only solution she realizes is to have Emil petrify her into the door. It's pretty sad. 
literally everything goes wrong. That was another scene that was just really hard emotionally. Then you get a five-year time skip, and you see shades in armor attacking some villagers when flying out of the sky like he was airdropped from an helicopter comes near with a hefty two-handed sword and a spear. Now you have two new types of weapons available to you to fight these guys off. Spears are real busted. Two-handed swords are said to be good for cracking armor. Their attacks are pretty slow though, and the most effective way to attack with them, as in a lot of games with jumping attacks and two-handed swords, is to jump and use the power attack, which will slam into the ground, and you can just do that repeatedly. Shades start wearing armor, so your little triangle guard-breaking move starts coming in handy. Except that spears have a forward-facing regular combo, and if you press the special attack button, you'll do a really strong dashing attack. Like, incredibly strong. I think someone messed up a number somewhere as to how much better these are than everything. I felt a little bad when I used a spear during the final boss fight because I felt like I shouldn't have won that easily. <laughs> yeah, I still used other weapons occasionally, Yeah, but the spear is pretty much, if something's difficult, use the spear. I mainly jump between the spear and two-handed sword, but it was mostly just the DLC spear for most of the game. <laughs> Yeah, the upgrade materials for the DLC weapons are hard to come by, though, and I ended up maxing out the DLC two-handed sword and didn't want to scrounge up the resources for the DLC spear. I feel like they knew that spears were really good because I'm pretty sure the spear is the last weapon that you get from the DLC. But after this, it turns out Nier has spent these five years hunting shades looking for a lead. And actually, he has an eye patch now. It's just a thing that happened in the five years. I thought it would have been from getting stabbed by the Shadow Lord, but that was through the chest. So, just additionally, he's lost an eye. Yes, a giant, stupid metal eye patch. <laughs> but the reason why you pick back up at this five-year point is Emil sends near a letter and says he may have found a way to save Kaine. Yay! <laughs> yeah, and it turns out when you get to the mansion that there's a hidden sub-basement with a lab underneath it, so it's actually even more like Resident Evil than previously. Except then the game turns into Diablo. Yeah, it has a isometric three-quarters overhead perspective that you fight through the lab with. Mostly it's just that something's hidden by the perspective that you need to find to progress, but it's it's pretty straightforward. I remember taking way longer than it should I remember enjoying it, but I think that's just because I liked playing Diablo a lot. <laughs> I think we should mention that uh, Brother Nier's look completely changes between the time skip. Yeah, that's true, because Father Nier, like an adult in five years, is not going to look that much different, unless they lose an eye and need to wear a metal eye patch. But for Brother Nier's case, he was pretty young, so in five years he's much taller, and he doesn't have an eye patch, though. He also doesn't wear his hair up in a really unusual way. He doesn't look like a cockatoo. <laughs> <laughs> As you go through the lab, Emil will have those painful amnesia remembering headaches that people get in the media all the time, but eventually you'll find a document with a picture of Emil and his twin sister, Halua. It turns out that they were 
being engineered as weapons using something called Gestalt Technology. You will see how this turned out for Halua in the next room, because Emil identifies his sister as this giant skeleton baby thing that's been speared into a wall. It's adorable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember that uh, Halua was designed to be the ultimate weapon, and Emil was basically designed to keep the ultimate weapon under control should it go mad with power. But it turns out he couldn't, which is why they did what they did to her. And when Emil walks up to her, she swallows him whole. So the boss fight after this, she'll crawl on the wall like she's Spider-Man, and you have to shoot her down with magic. When you kill her, Emil, in like a vision, says goodbye to Hulua in her human form. And then in this big storm of energy... Emil seems really reticent to let Nier see him, but when it all clears up, he's now a really bizarre-looking skeleton. Please hug this little skeleton boy. Also, that scene slayed me, because Emil was afraid to have Nier see him, because he thought he'd look like a freak, and Nier just says that he'll look out for him no matter what, and support him. Yeah. That hit me really hard. As, like, a trans woman. Yeah, that's a really good scene, and Emile's voice actress sells it. Yeah. Considering that Emile felt like a freak before any transformation happened, he was just a little kid who couldn't look at people. But that's the other thing. Once Nier comforts him, he realizes, I can look at him with my eyes for the first time ever. (laughs) He Mm -hmm. says that Nier looks cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's really sweet. He's definitely my favorite scene in the game. Yeah. Then Emil uses his power to restore Kaine, and she unpetrifies, but she is still passed out. And the shade from five years ago immediately breaks out at full strength. It's still just a head, but it's as pissed as ever. But when he fights it, he just says it feels much easier now. Because of the five years, he's just become a total badass. And uses Dark Hand to squeeze the life out of it, literally. <laughs> I think Nier actually does gain a couple of levels in the time skip. Emil seems kind of nervous around Kaine. I like the comparison here, because she says to Emil, like, yeah, I recognize you right away. And then she looks at Nier and says he looks like shit. (laughs) (laughs) But then with all this settled, Popola wants to talk to Nier, and the villagers feel really uncomfortable with Kaine and Emil, and want them to sleep outside the village, despite everything they've done. Nier is pissed. Yep. But Kaine doesn't seem to care much, and uh, Emil loves camping with Kaine. Yeah, that was really cute, and Kaine's like, don't talk about that, it makes me seem like less of a badass. Yeah. On the upside, Popola informs Nier of a trade waterway that has opened up, because there was a dock in the town before, but you couldn't do anything with it. And this lets you fast travel to villages. And also to a dock in the Northern Plains area, which you need to get to the Lost Shrine's back entrance, because the front had crumbled after the events of your last visit. When you go back, there's a lot more box-pushing puzzles added to the rooms out of nowhere. They're still not hard, but there are some sub-bosses now on the other floors. And maybe the first sign you get that, like, near outside of his single-minded focus is probably not a very good person... Vice notices when you get swarmed by a lot of the small shades. We seem to be surrounded by a mob of helpless puppies, and Nier just effortlessly says, just kick him aside. (laughs) 
Yeah, Nier becomes a lot more ruthless after the time skip. Yeah, a lot of townspeople will say it too, they'll seem different, you kind of scare me. <laughs> Definitely changed as a person over those five years and just is pissed as hell and just wants to crush all the shades. And get Yona back, no matter what. Like, he becomes very obviously single-mindedly focused on that, to the point where he might not be a good person. <laughs> but he's not, like, unrealistically just, like, mean to everyone, but just the yeah. way he carries himself, and, like, it's the little things that he says that would key you in. But, yeah, once you get up to the top of the shrine, it turns out that one of the two statue guardians you fought at the beginning is still alive, and has a bunch of other shades with it that die when they get exposed to the sunlight. And this boss fight actually is a whole lot of nothing for most of it. When you kill the shade, its lance goes flying and impales Kaine, who then revives in this feral shade form, which is super aggressive and doesn't appear to know herself at all. Yeah, you punch her out of it. And then she wakes up fine. This is, I think, the first time you see her take what appears to be a fatal hit and like get back up from it. But you acquire a stone fragment from this place, and you have a choice of whether you want to go to the Junk Keep or the Forest of Myth. It looks to fill in part of a key you need to assemble. That's your main quest for part two. Yeah. If you go to the Junk Keep, you get a flashback of Jacob and Gideon trying to find stuff in the Junk Keep. And Jacob gets crushed by a bunch of falling stuff. Gideon sees a robot with a shade just like looking on. And when you go visit there, like, Nier will find out that Jacob died. So Gideon is just singularly focused, like Nier, on wanting to kill this robot with this shade. He gives you a broken sword called the Iron Will, which is a two-handed style sword, but it's totally junk because the entire blade's missing. But he says he'll fix it for you if you get him some memory alley and also promise to kill the shade and the robot go through the junk heap earlier and we didn't mention but it is when we talk about the combat being let down by the design of the game this is that area because it's just boxy rooms for the most part and doors and some of them you can go in and some of them you can't you just fight these robots and it's not very dynamic or anything but at this point in the game you have to go deeper than you ever did yeah on the other hand it still has my favorite theme from the main game Wretched Automata did really good. I like the acapella version on the bonus soundtrack. Also, Gideon wants to kill not just that one robot, he wants to kill all robots. Yep. Yeah, so in a way, his singular focus is on killing all robots, just like Nier wants to kill all the shades. Jacob was also voiced by Yuri Lowenthal, and now that Gideon's older, he's voiced by Yuri Lowenthal. It's a rite of passage for young children. <laughs> <laughs> In a weird Zelda-like touch in this dungeon, there'll be bombs that come out of certain dispensers and you need those to clear passageways. Really not much to it. But you fight a boss, which is a big robot that looks kind of like the one from the flashback. I think I actually died to these one time, because they're a little stronger than you might think. But you kill it and you get memory alloy, and Gideon will need time to repair Iron Will. So you can go to the forest or you can talk with popola for the forest you can enter the great trees memories which says it holds all the world's memories and it'll tell you some stories with some specific details in them that you actually have to remember to answer questions later 
But one story it can't tell you is a red dragon falls from the sky, and it can't seem to remember the rest, but it says it was a favorite story of the trees. The tree is a very uh, morbid fellow. Yeah, all the stories have pretty sad outcomes, but you have to remember the details. There'll be like a color mentioned or a number, and that's all you have to keep track of. And this is also handled in text adventure form, so that when it gets to the point where it turns out a shade has possessed the tree and made playthings of all the different memory crystals or whatever, you have to solve its riddles, which will stop the shade but also make the tree lose itself, and it appears to die. And you'll get another stone fragment. The tree is named Sleeping Beauty, by the way. If you go back to the town, you can get a letter from Gideon that'll tell you that the sword is ready. Then you'll get it, and it's pretty massive. Like, this is, you know, feels contractually obligated for a lot of RPGs to have a sword that references the Dragon Slayer from Berserk. This one's that. Yep. Weapons have a weight rating in their descriptions, but I could not notice any difference in swing speed, and when you upgrade weapons, they all inevitably get heavier. I think it's supposed to make armor fall off easier because you're hitting it harder? Yeah, that would make more sense in terms of upgrading everything and it getting heavier. Remember noticing very, very small differences in swing speed, but they weren't really significant. It's milliseconds in a game where entire seconds are not precious in terms of decision making. The only move that really requires a lot of precision in this game is totally optional, but if you block an enemy attack right as it hits, you'll perform a counterattack, which looks really cool. The hit effects are really good, but you never, ever need to do it. You can also do, like, finishing blows on enemies, which I also never did. Yeah. So you get the Iron Will, which you don't have to use, it really doesn't matter. But you now descend one more time into the Junk Heap, as deep as you could possibly go, and you will fight the robot with the little shade on top piloting it. And as you damage it, it'll eventually form wings out of junk, but it'll also start slamming its head into the ceiling. And the shade will just, like, scream a lot during this fight. Once you damage the robot enough, it just collapses, and it says, like, must defend my mission repeatedly. Then the shade appears to split into three different ones, but then you just kill all those, and shade dies. Gideon shows up and screams his ass off at this robot. Hitting that thing won't bring your brother back. But he's dead! And it's this bastard's fault! And hitting it makes me feel better! Just wait! You freak! You goddamn freak! I'm gonna explore this entire mountain now! I'll make terrible weapons! Killing machines! No one can stop me! <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's very clear that he is uh, not doing so well. Yeah, even Vices is like, it's really lost to revenge. Even after killing this thing, it's not over for him. Nor will it ever be. Also, wasn't his arm removed by himself just out of anger? Yeah, he has a, a robotic arm now. I think it's the same arm that he saw of his, uh, his brothers. Yeah. Pretty, uh... Pretty messed up. A sad ending to a sad story. This gives you another part of the key. And now, when you head back to the village, you can talk to Popola. This is the choice you had earlier. 
She says she's received a letter from the Airy that says they're open to business and they've shut themselves out from the world too long. And they know about the sacrifice keyword that is part of the key you're assembling. And when you go there, this part is pretty unsettling because the ambiance of the village hasn't changed much and people in their homes are all doomed saying that they're all going to die and shouldn't come here. But when you enter, like, I guess what you could call the town square at the back, there's all these shops set up, though they sell the bare minimum that any shop could possibly have. They don't have anything unique. Yeah, which makes sense because they freak out and they turn into shades. And this section is total calamity. There's people turning into shades and some people aren't. At one point, Kaina even kills a woman who appears to be totally normal. And Emil is freaking the hell out because he doesn't want to kill any people. This all started because Nier said to a guy, I'm going to kill all the shades. The way they freak out is just everyone, everyone. It's a very strange scene. Kinda gets cut down by the shade woman she killed, so she's out of commission again. But after you kill enough of the shades, a giant black swirl appears in the town center, and it coalesces into this giant blossoming flower shade with a big eye in the center. It looks really cool. This boss is mostly just aiming practice. The petals of the flower will block the eye. So you have to just aim carefully while other shades attack you on the ground. Emil thinks that some of these shades might have formed into people, but Weiss insists that that's not what's happened. That's enough to convince Emil to pin down this shade with a giant energy beam straight out of Dragon Ball Z or something, but you have to go around to its back. And when you weaken it here, you'll have one last fight with it. Nier and Emil combine their spells to kill the shade but then Emil goes haywire. He's unable to stop himself, and Vice notes that the ultimate weapon is being unleashed. And he creates this giant wave of energy that, when everything clears, has wiped out the entire area. And this scene was one that got me the most, because it really lays out how these characters interact. I killed innocent people. But you saved our lives, didn't you? If it wasn't for you, we'd all be dead. We owe you. It's all right. scene where he just looks out across that desolate spot where this village was and says don't look back always gets me at that point it is very very clear that year is really cold towards the people who aren't close to him and mm -hmm. that when it comes to killing shades he will do literally anything short of hurting one of his friends it's definitely a real strong scene also the theme that plays here, uh, Emil Sacrifices. Probably one of the uh, better sad songs in a video game. Then you get the sacrifice key, and yeah, I guess that's what the sacrifice was. Everyone in that village. But hey, you have one piece of the key left, and you get a letter from the King of Assad inviting near to his wedding. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. 
and it turns out his bride-to-be is Fira, but he confides in the party. It's been a bad harvest, and the wolf attacks are just getting worse and worse. Nier tries to reassure him that he just has to be strong and push through. Not at the wedding the next morning. See a lot of people, like, dancing in time, throwing out flowers, and Kainé's being a sourpuss about the whole thing. It's a pretty fun scene. Until a town guard walks in and collapses, covered in blood, and the wolf shade kills Fira. Just snaps her off. Well, she doesn't die immediately. You have time to fight them off. But this scene is one that is really emblematic of Yoko Taro's writing process, which he talked about at the Game Developers Conference, GDC, because it uses two of his techniques that he built around and explains why Nier is a really compact story despite having a huge amount of extended material. And it involves things he calls uh, reverse script writing and photo thinking. So reverse script writing is imagining a scene of emotional impact and then picking apart what would earn that impact and working back from there. And part of the reason he said he did it is the cost of game development. You can't feel your way out, really. So in this case, though, he started with a simple idea. A girl dies and worked back from there. What would make it tragic that she died? What are the things about her that, if you didn't know she was going to die, that would endear you to her? And in some cases, it's that she couldn't speak, she didn't have any family, she grew up through indentured servitude, and now she was set to marry the king. All these things were meant to play into this scene. And with photo thinking, it's freezing that moment in time and seeing all the details that would fill out the tragedy which includes her telling the king not to freak out because everyone's watching and everyone looks up to the king. And he thanks the king for marrying her. Those are her dying words. So yeah, that worked. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that Fira is 10 and the king is 15, so that's pretty sad. The king now has sworn revenge on the wolves. But what this scene does in terms of contrasting it is that the king's advisor tells him not to go alone. The king won't listen to any of them. Going off to fight the wolves by himself would go against all their rules. The king mentions that the rules didn't save Fira and guarantee her a good life. Then the advisor reveals that he got the approval of everyone in the city so that the advisor and the royal guard, the men of the mask, could join him. And this actually pulls him back a little bit. The difference between the king of Assad and Gideon is that Gideon didn't have anyone and he was just in isolation with his anger for that whole time and it took him over near in a similar sense like his friends were Emil and Kaine and Kaine was indisposed in those five years and it also drove him to be a lot more brutal. So you kill off the entire wolf pack and then fight the wolf shade. Vice notes that these things are unrelenting in their assault, and they target the king specifically and the advisor. Finally finish it off, and you get the loyal Cerberus fragment of the key, and it's completed. But after you defeat the wolf, the king has buried Fira. He's still in distress, but then Vice asks him to remember what would Fira have said. She would be happy that you gave her a good life, and not to lose hope. You head back to the Lost Shrine through the rear passageway that you took from fast travel. 
and now it's mostly full of armored shades and mini bosses on your way out. There's no more block pushing puzzles also. Yeah, it feels like a real final approach. And the room where you fought the two statue guardians, a seal disappears on the back and an old style elevator shows up and you can ride to a rooftop garden. This has these birds giving you like sort of riddles for vice to answer. And I mean, their voices are deep and dramatic, which is kind of funny. But their riddles are pretty much asking if you understand the plot. What is the destination of souls? I answer, they are placed in their corresponding shells. Very well. You are acknowledged as masters. You may enter. And this will all be explained a little better in just a second, because you solve these riddles and you're free to advance and see Devla and Popola, who ask you to turn back. And if you do, you actually just get teleported back to the village. Like, nothing happened, but you have nothing else to do. But if you choose to fight them, they'll reveal that they were working with the Shadow Lord, and they point their wands at Vice, and he gets electrocuted and begins stuttering. Then they disappear. You also lose all your magic. Because they reveal that the power of the sealed verses came from them all along. And they just needed Vice to reacquire them. Then the next room you go into is a ballroom with these dancing ghosts. But once you advance far enough, they turn into shades as well and you fight them off. You're waiting for Kanye to kick down a door. But when she does, the door opens and there's those little like shade orbs from the boss fights you've seen earlier all roll over her and knock her out. And after you kill enough of them, they form up on a shade wizard and forms into a giant version of the boar you fought earlier to get the item to do boar drifting with. It's the boar's revenge. <laughs> and as you're fighting it, Kaine responds about not needing to be forgiven to apparently no one. And then when you kill it, another giant boar appears behind you with armor on, and it starts spewing poison gas and when you kill it it comes back to life again so eventually kind of recovers and you have to escape up a set of stairs if it catches up to you at this point you die instantly it's really not too bad like there's some items and boxes on the way but it's all basic healing items but once you get up the stairs it comes into another arena where you have to fight it off but then the king of facade appears with the men of the mask because they found out where you were going and they want to help you. They're good buddies. It appears like they're just holding it off to open the way for Nier and Kaine and Emil to go on. But then they shut the door without following to hold this thing off. As you head up to the next room, Devla and Popola give Vice the Project Gestalt documents, which reveal the full shape of the plot, as far as you need to know for the game. Yeah, because a lot more stuff has happened. The Gestalts are basically the souls of humans that have been extracted from their bodies, and they were extracted to avoid by chlorination which was ending the world. The replicants were copies of their bodies that did not have a soul, and they were both rebuilding the world, but also intended for the Gestalts to reoccupy so that they could basically create humanity again and of 
avoid the complete extinction from the White Chlorination Syndrome in the Legion. The White Chlorination Syndrome in Legion are things we'll discuss later. They're hinted at in some of those loading screen journals where they mention that people are suffering cases and these other humans are suffering from some kind of relapse. The thing that they uh, didn't account for in the Gestalt Project was that they didn't expect the replicants to gain sentience. Yeah, they were supposed to not be sentient so that they could just be inhabited easily. Also, they needed a Gestalt that was stable. Normally, Gestalts will just go mad after a certain point and just become rampage in chains. But the original Nier was kind of their last hope in that he was stable as a Gestalt and didn't have a chance of descending into madness. Yeah, he was the first one to successfully undergo the Gestalt process. And so they needed him so that they could make sure everyone else does not just become a mindless shade again. So this whole setup involving the Shadow Lord and this prophecy was all to drive Replicant Nier to utilize Grimoire Vice, collect the sealed verses, and rejoin. This was all a narrative constructed by Devil and Popola to make this happen. Yeah, they aren't really good at their jobs. Yeah, they kind of suck. <laughs> it's also revealed that they are androids, which is why they do not age. Yeah, I think Bronier mentions that it's really weird that they don't age. For this next scene, because of course, this is all completely mind-blowing to Nier, who's just known them as people in the village who like took him in doesn't accept Andis and wants them to just cease what they're doing. So you have a boss fight where Devil will fight you on the ground level while Popola is standing on the stage thing shooting you from afar. When you kill Devola, Popola cries, which neither of them knew they were able to do. And the way Popola freaks out here is pretty disquieting. Popola. Let's stop this now. Stop. You want me to stop? You think I have the luxury to stop? You cut down my sister like an animal, and you tell me to stop? Popola, wait! It doesn't have to- No one stops! It's way too late to stop! No one stops! I hope it only took one take to get that. <laughs> yeah, her, her VA is real good. When you beat her, though, Nier doesn't kill her. There's just a bridge that Nier and Kaya and Emil are going to cross. Popola destroys it, so Emil creates this orb that they all float across in. But then Popola uses her magic to try and hold back the little bubble that they're all floating in. So Emil in an effort to get Kaine and Nier across, sends them out in a separate bubble, floats towards Popola, and blows himself up. That also got me pretty hard, because Emil gets really scared as he's blowing himself up. Like he tries to reassure himself. Yeah. Again, in terms of being emotionally genuine, a lot of media to make you feel better about someone sacrificing themselves would have them throw some brave words about their adventure and then die. But... Before he does, he just realizes, I just want to see them one more time. Yeah. Kaine has to 
slap near into action again. He doesn't want to proceed because the two people who made sure he and Yona had a life are gone. Emil is gone, and he probably thinks that the king and his friends aren't faring too well at whatever they're doing. Yeah. So Nier enters the room and sees Yona laying on a bed, passed out. Tries to run to her, but the Shadow Lord appears. They seem set to fight, but Yona wakes up, and she calls to her father and walks past near to the Shadow Lord. And it turns out that Replicant Yona has been successfully fused into Gestalt Yona, but she can still hear Replicant Yona's voice calling for her own father. And she says, it's just not right that I can be with my dad and she can't be with hers. So she walks to a window and you see a light leave her body. This drives the Shadow Lord into a frenzy, and you have a final boss fight with him. I like the final boss track a lot, and I like that it's not in anywhere special. It's just in the Shadow Lord's room, and it's not like a massive, ominous throne room. It's literally just the room where he is. There is a little bed and everything. Yeah, it's kind of a cruddy room. <laughs> For how glamorous everything else was leading up to that, it's very simple and kind of sparse. It's a regular little girl's room, just with a bunch of open space in it. It's also worth mentioning that you're also in the ruins of some city at this point, because there's a big distance between the Lost Shrine and wherever this is. So, partway through the battle with the Shadow Lord, mostly it's just close-range attacks and bullets or whatever. Pretty straightforward, unfortunately, I'd say in this case, but at one point... Vice just sort of falls over because he's been floating alongside me this whole time and then he reveals that he has used up almost all of his power over these five years. But I fear this is where our journey ends. Vice! Oh, and remember what I told you about using my full name. We'll forget it. I've grown rather fond of Vice. Vice. I knew you'd come around. <laughs> Don't let it go to your head now. Vice destroys himself to destroy Grimoire Noir, and now you just have a no magic final showdown with the Shadow Lord, but really the Shadow Lord sprays bullets everywhere and you have to break through without any magic and hit him a few times. That fight is really notable, because every time you hit him, a layer of the music disappears, and when he just has one hit left, the only thing that's there is a music box version of the Shadow Lord's theme. Yeah, it's really cool. Nier even appears to hesitate for a moment before striking the final blow and killing the Shadow Lord. He really wonders if it's all been worth it. To reawaken Yona, Nier has to say to her the name of who she loves more than anyone, which... Sensibly should be dad, but it's whatever you entered your name as for your save file. Yeah, that warmed my heart a lot. Yeah, it is pretty cute. Yona wakes up and kind of says she has her own shit to take care of, so she walks off. And you get a flashback to Nier and young Yona just relaxing in the sun, and a shot of the Shadow Lord and older Yona walking into the light. And the English version of the credits song Ashes of Dreams plays, and that's ending A of Nier. After the credits roll, though, you get a thing that says to play again, and you'll see the story from Kaine's perspective, which doesn't mean you play as her, but it changes some things about the story that 
really turn things around in a way that I had never seen before. Yeah. Basically, you hear things from Pine's perspective. Yeah. Alright, so normally when I cut the YouTube videos for the podcast or anything, I just do it around like a middle point, around some kind of break. But for this episode, after we do a couple of things, I'm going to cut it here because maybe things sound underwhelming or hard or annoying or whatever. But really, like, when I played it, it didn't really feel that way. It's sort of a thing that, upon reflection, I noticed more. And I don't think it's a game that, like, everyone will like. I mean, it depends on how much you like action RPGs. But... Really, I think it's pretty good, and if it was just ending A, I think it would have been a pretty worthy and unique experience. It's a really janky kind of game, but you can tell it's got a lot of heart put into it. As, well, I wouldn't say all of Kavsha's games have heart so much. I mean, Drakengard 1 is what <laughs> I refer to as the gaming equivalent of a jackhammer drilling into your skull, but in like a novel way. It's probably one of the most hostile to the player games I've ever played. And something like Winback 2 is very middle of the road. It's not very refined, but it's a fun game. I would play it again. The only thing that's really held me back is there's just so many games in the world to play. I can't play anymore. My PS3 is dead. Yeah. I'd have to get out my 360 and don't really want to go through the entire game, but yeah. That's fair. I really enjoyed the story, and the gameplay was alright, but it's not something I'd want to redo, especially given the time commitment to do it. And a lot of those story moments, I can sort of remember how that was when I see the cutscenes and stuff, but you can't really go back and have that experience again. Yeah. It's the same reason why I would never want to replay Drakengard 3, because that's not a game I want to play once, but I'm glad I played it. <laughs> I have yet to get around to that, but I probably should. So, to get some things out of the way that we'd also do at the end of the podcast, the reason I'm saying this is, the twist that the game takes in ending B and onwards and the implications of the extended material, really I would want you to experience it for yourself if you can. Normally I wouldn't tell people to stop listening to my podcast with an irregular update schedule partway through and remember to come back later, but it means that much to me, I guess is what I'm saying completely changes how you see everything in the game, and that is a pretty big accomplishment. And it makes sense in the context of the game. It's not just some gibberish someone thought of. From the beginning, there were connections that you could see, but you never got full context for. And once you do, it completely reshapes everything the game was setting out to do. So actually, unlike a lot of games that are called classics. Nier has actually gotten more affordable since when I bought it. When I got it, 40 bucks was the cheapest I could find, and that had gone up from the previous prices. But now if you want to get like a, a used copy from Amazon, it's like 20 bucks for PS3 or 12 bucks for the Xbox 360. You can also get Nier Replicant for around that price, the, uh, the Japanese import version. Well, for like 50 bucks. You know, it was maybe a bit more than I'd recommend paying for it but there's like an English patch for the game. In an interview, Yoko Taro mentioned that there was going to be a PlayStation Vita version, but they never got around to making it. And I think this would work on a Vita, but I don't know that portability gains this game a lot, except for if you want to grind out weapon upgrades or something. It probably didn't pan out because Kavya got closed. Yeah, and 
and also like I feel like it is really well structured for a portable game. That's true. And before the different versions of the game, Replicant against Salt, the way a lot of those events played out, also like you have to imagine they'd have a different impact. Like that five year time skip, that was a sort of singular minded older man becoming more singular minded. Whereas Nier's the brother was much more optimistic and the events that leave that time skip snatch all that away. I remember someone said this, but post time skip brother near, you can easily see how he could become father near. Yeah. And also having to kill Devila and Popola, again, those are people who took in father near and his daughter. But in terms of brother near, they also probably helped raise him. Yep, he has to kill his own moms. A couple more tidbits from behind the game. Uh, the original spelling of Yona's Japanese name was apparently pretty similar to the biblical figure of Jonah, but that didn't fly in America because, yeah, I don't think they wanted to have a sister named Jonah because that would probably confuse people. And the other thing is that in Kaine's original concept, she was much more feminine looking and she had to hide the fact that she was extremely violent. And I feel like that archetype, because I know some people don't like kind of being really brash. I feel like the alternative is characters that have to hide it, and that's a lot more common. Her design is highly sexualized, but her personality kind of helps make it not feel, like, cringeworthy in the way it is for many other things. She's not an ideal anime girlfriend or something like that. She is a very violent and horrible person. Who has some soft spots, but also she's a lot better developed and a lot more interesting <laughs> than if she was just there for fan service or something like that. And they do a pretty good job of not creeping on her, despite the way she's designed. Nier just thinks it's weird that she dresses that way, Vice thinks it's dumb, and Emil doesn't really care. Emil is just happy to have a friend mm -hmm. to have slumber parties with. <laughs> also, for this bit we're gonna read the emails because the two we got were not too hot on the game and they didn't get further than we did by quite a bit so i figured we'd read them here and not end the podcast on that note so our first one comes in from amber keep in mind this was years ago as i haven't touched the game since it's difficult to remember all the details so a couple of years ago maybe give or take three my friends were really pushing for me to buy Nier because they were playing it. OMG, it's so great, and it was the best, supposedly. After a couple weeks of pestering, I went and looked and found that I could get the game for like $5, and was like, okay, whatever, it's only $5. I ended up hating the game. I thought the opening sequence was fairly interesting, and that maybe, just maybe the characters other than whoever the little girl in that flashback, flash forward, flash whatever seed, would eventually grow on me. After wandering the town for what was actually hours of trying to find plot and make things happen, I think I finally triggered a quest or something. I attempted the quest, succeeded, passed out, and woke up back in that horrid barren wasteland of a town. I had no attachment to any characters, the fights were a mess, I wasted about five hours of my life playing the game, that my friends were screaming about online. The worst part was that GameStop wouldn't buy it off me, so I'm 75% certain I still own the game somewhere in storage. So, like I said, for some reason, with this game, I didn't really find myself unaware of what I was supposed to do. I guess that was different for some people in different points in this game, and I can see how that's frustrating. I mean, just get me playing a puzzle game of any kind, and you'll see that same frustration come out of me. Yeah, I think the 
point of the game that's kind of the hardest to get just by playing is knowing how to get all the endings. Because the last two endings have requirements that are kind of frustrating if you have no idea what to do. Yeah, I just realized that even though the game tells you what to do, it doesn't exactly tell you how to go about doing it. Yep. And if you're doing it without any guides or anything, you have to go through a bunch of the most tedious side quests to find the ones that you're actually supposed to be doing. One of the side quests that you do to get the C and D endings is really cool, though. Mm-hmm. I just happened to chance into that, actually, which was really fortunate for me again. Like, I apparently just had one of the most, like, blessed near playthroughs of all time. <laughs> yeah, I had spoiled myself by that point and just started reading guides on it. I just kind of tried to do as many side quests as I could that weren't pains in the ass and <laughs> kind of wound up working. Yeah, because in some cases it's like, oh, gather this uncommon material for me. Well... I did a little bit of going through the junk heap more times than I needed to, which, yeah, takes a certain mindset. But I was just looking for certain upgrade materials, and I didn't get them, but I just ended up flush with other stuff I needed to complete other side quests. Alright, so one more email. This comes from Booker. Okay, so I'm going to preface this by saying, one, I don't like Nier, and two, I understand that it's still a good game. It just isn't a good game for me. Three, I got as far as learning to fish, and then stopped playing, so take that as you will. My first problem with Nier is that initially the game felt enjoyable, and that it really quickly became dull. I was a big fan of the opening sequence, where you're just killing guys non-stop. I liked it because I enjoyed exploring the combat mechanics of the game. Then it threw me into the actual game, and the world was so overwhelmingly vast that I felt as though the entire combat tutorial was rendered pointless. Obviously I wasn't going to be fighting a ton of guys again anytime soon. I don't like the protagonist. A big reason I did play very far into Nier was because the cast was not compelling in the slightest. The characters who did have personality, though, I couldn't stand. I met the book, who was funny, but usually just irritating. I met the girl in her underwear, who was both frustrating, abrasive, and only wore underwear. Not much else to say there. What's striking to me about Nier is that it's not a bad game. Quite the opposite, I know there's a good game somewhere in it, which is why, despite myself, I am excited for Automaton. But Nier is the exact opposite of what I want my games to be. I like games with a lot of focus, games that know exactly what they want to be, and that isn't Nier. Nier tries to do a lot of different things instead of just doing one thing very well. The worst of this is the combat, as it seems like there's a great deal of depth to it, but at no point I actually had an opportunity to explore that depth. The boss fights felt too gimmicky to really make use of the tools, and the regular moves just weren't compelling to fight. Nier made a bad first impression on me, I gave it a lot of chances, and nothing held my interest enough for me to finish the game. I just want to be clear, I don't hate Nier and think it's a terrible game or anything of the sort. It is just really exceptionally not for me, and that's fine, I'm just not part of this demographic. Well, there wasn't really much more to the combat than that, actually, so you did it. The combat's not that deep. Also in terms of the world being vast, I mean, memory compresses space, but really, you can run through a lot of the areas in a couple of minutes on foot. Yeah. A minute or less if you have a boar. Yeah, it's just open. <laughs> it's not like the wide open plains Skyrim or, you know, the sort of dense stacked structures of something like Dragon's Dogma. It's more akin to, like, the N64 Zelda games, really. It definitely felt that way to me. I mean, we've had the whole episode to discuss all those things. If that answered your questions or not about how the rest of the game is, or invoked some kind of interest, then, you know, I'd hope it'd do that, but I can see how it still wouldn't. You play the game, you had your experience with it. It'd be difficult to divorce yourself from that. So now, we'll discuss 
beginning the route to ending B, which begins at the cutscene of a Mew unpetrifying Kaine after the time skip. Already pretty unusual for a New Game Plus to start you more than partway through the game. It was really start to boot up to that instead of at the very beginning of the game. Kind of merciful, though, because you got to play it a lot of times over. <laughs> so now you get some text scenes with music. These sections are played out as Kaine's dreams, where you get more of her backstory. And one of the first things that will probably stand out is one of the children who bullies her says, What you acting like a girl for? Because Kaine is actually intersex. So that's what this bullying is about. I think some people have tried to come up with other interpretations, but it's been confirmed by Yoko Taro that that's yeah. what Yeah. Although the term is hermaphrodite, which isn't the best term to use. Yeah, considering the rest of this game, I don't think it was done in bad faith. Yeah, I don't think so either. But yeah, so that's one of the first standout things. And really what I think explains the whole lingerie thing is this history of bullying for being a girl. Actually, it's less because she's a girl and more because they explain that because she's intersex, that's taken as a bad omen. Right. And they see her as like the center of that and all that's wrong in the community. These are people living in this... I mean, not that people in present day are great, but I mean, these are people with a lot of superstition surrounding their lives, too. And even then, they were an isolated community, so... Yeah, the area is kind of a shithole. Yep. An old lady saved her from the bullying, who is her grandmother, and that also explains why Kaine swears a lot, because her grandmother swears even more. <laughs> Grandma also taught her how to use a blade and everything, but she doesn't appear to have any kind of super strength or anything. Eventually, though, her grandmother begins suffering from dementia. While Kaine is trying to take care of her, a massive shade, which is the one that you fought before, attacks and burns down her home, mortally wounds Kaine, and cruelly, slowly kills her grandmother in front of her. The shade's name is Hook, by the way. As Kaine is bleeding out and seeing her grandmother's corpse, it fades out and you have the boss fight with the Shade again. And this plays out much the same, though Nier will have his levels and equipment from when you finish the game. The big Shade guy, he also has a name. He's called the Knave of Hearts. Knave or Jack. You beat it even easier than you did before, and you get one more dream. And this is going to explain the twist on the second playthrough and why Kaine has her power. She's beset by this horrible dream when she hears a voice and this murderous shade named Tehran possesses her and promises to give her power as long as she keeps killing and killing and killing. And if she stops, he will overtake her body. Yeah, Tiran is our final party member. Yay! He mostly just tells you to kill people or mocks you for not and for as relatively speaking normal kind of see she seems like a person would be motivated for normal reasons to do what she does turns out because this monster is in control of her body at the same time she does have her own reasons to murder the hell out of shades especially after hook yeah she kind of deals with her problems through really intense violence it's worth mentioning that Tiran is voiced by Spike Spencer, who was Shinji Ikari. <laughs> he puts on a really villainous Saturday morning cartoon voice. 
but not so much that it's really, really distracting. Honestly, I think they made it stand out more so you'd notice the first time he talks. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning that only Kaine can hear Tyrion for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Once you enter the Lost Shrine, the, the Hidden Passage, you see a cutscene of the stone statue guardian, which is named Gretel, bemoaning her brother Hansel's death from earlier. And these little shades come up and start talking to her, and she seems to dislike them. Then, when you're climbing the shrine, you'll see subtitles pop up when the shades are screaming. You can tell what they're saying now, because that's what it means by Kaine's perspective. She knows what the shades are saying. They're begging near to turn back, and you hear Tehran in the memories. It's just all text. There's no voice acting. But you'll hear Tehran say, like, he's heard of a place where incomplete shades gather. Also, at this point in the game, I didn't mention it for the first playthrough, but one technical thing that did stand out to me about this game is when you're fighting a high density of enemies, and this is a place where I noticed it the most, instead of the game slowing down, it lowers the resolution, so when there's enough enemies on screen, you'll be seeing pixels. <laughs> huh. Yeah, but the game is still running at full speed, actually, so you get it over with faster than if the game slowed down to handle all that. Which, since a lot of games don't really do it quite as noticeably, it actually stands out as an artistic touch, even though it's probably not. As you advance further up, you'll get another cutscene, and Gretel has now befriended the Shades, saying that she judged them for going to Stalt before their change was complete. Yeah, they're just little kids. And that's why they were uh, carrying school books and coloring books and stuff. It's also worth noting there's a quest where you just find a small Shade in the village, and he just wants to play, but you murder him senselessly. Yeah... And it's one of those situations where, even without the context of knowing that the Shades were people, it stands out as like, what? What? Yeah. It's very clear that you are not doing something you should be. Well, also, the intro section after you harvest the mutton, (laughs) that first quest and those Shades appear by the town, they don't attack you ever. Hmm. But they know that since you just fought a bunch of them during the tutorial, you're just going to kill them. And when Shades attack later, it's the bigger Shades because you killed their children. (laughs) When you get up to the boss fight, Gretel is trying to plead with Nier not to kill the smaller Shades, and Tehran is just having a grand old time with all this going on. The boss fight proceeds as normal, but when you are about to kill Gretel, a lot of her dialogue about wanting to help her friends is a lot like Nier's. Mm. The only difference being that you're stronger than her, so you kill her. I did not see the dialogue because I killed the fight really fast because I was overleveled. It's in the cutscene still. There's some other dialogue, but yeah, you can miss some of it. I don't think that's super common. I was going to say that if you, the listener, are planning on playing this for yourself, you might want to switch the difficulty over to hard for your second playthrough to make sure you hear all of the new dialogue in the boss fights. Yeah, what I would do is I would deal some damage and then just kind of back off so I could hear the dialogue. Yeah. Everything else, all the other cutscenes and all the other characters' dialogue stays the same. They literally just added subtitles and Tehran's dialogue to a lot of these scenes. So when you go to the junk heap, before the cutscene of Jacob's death, you see a cutscene of a larger shade with a smaller shade running off, and the smaller shade... There's actually a young boy named Khalil 
And the bigger shade is mother. She tells him to run and she's going to distract the regular humans, or in this case replicants, that are hunting them down. So she runs off and Khalil is alone when the robot boss you fought shows up. And in a really weird scene, like says, oh, you're an intruder, I have to kill you. But then notices that he's crying and just changes his whole tone. He's like, oh, I'm P-33. I'll protect you. BB is a good robot. Yeah, nicknames P-33 BB. And they talk about wanting to leave and explore the world together. And Khalil tries to like quiz P-33 on different stuff, like what's a ship and whatnot. And then you see the cutscene with Jacob dying, which you can tell in the first cutscene that it is Gideon's fault that Jacob dies. But in this case, you also see a cutscene afterwards where Khalil and P-33 bemoan the death of Jacob. Mm. And when you get to the junk heap, this is a bit of a fourth wall breaking moment because Gideon gives you the Iron Will sword, but it's already in your inventory. And Vice just says, these kind of things happen the second time around. Yeah. That was a little goof out of nowhere when I played through the first time. Then you get to the boss fight, like everything else proceeds as normal. When you have the boss fight, Khalil is trying to tell P-33 to desist. Just surrender or whatever. And this really disturbs Kaine. Makes her almost not want to go through with it, but Tehran is egging her on. And when you kill it and Gideon's kicking the crap out of it, Tehran just loves all this happening. He gets off on like a lot of it, but this scene especially he just loves because of all the reasons we stated before with how full of hatred Gideon is. Because it makes it more like him. So, more name stuff. Khalil's name in Japanese is Cleo, who is named after the goldfish from Pinocchio. And P-33, the P stands for Pinocchio. Well, also these automatons come to life. It fits the story of Pinocchio as well. Yeah. So, in the uh, desert section with Facade, you get a cutscene of the wolf shade, which is named Rock, R-O-C, talking with the other wolves, which can understand him, that this area used to be a forest, actually. The whole thing was desecrated, but he still hopes that he can coexist with the humans. And when you stay the night at the palace before the uh, wedding, you'll see a cutscene. The men of the mask have been murdering the wolves in groves in preparation for the wedding because they don't want an incident. Yeah. So you see Rock running to try and save any of them, but he can't. They slowly all die in front of him, having been speared through multiple times. And this pushes him over the edge. So when you have the boss fight with him, he actually offers to let the other wolves escape and he'll fight them alone, but they won't leave him. Then when you kill him, he has a vision of an old man who said that I've lived long enough. And it turns out this old man let the wolf become a gestalt and this old man would just pass on. So he even had a human owner and all this and had all this empathy and eerie lies speared through the face by a human who was culpable in killing all those other wolves. I still kind of don't feel bad for Rock because he killed Fira. I feel bad for both of them, really. A lot of here is like both sides had their reason for doing what they did. It's still really sad for me. Yeah, the truth is that they're both victims. Yeah. Oh yeah, also worth mentioning, P-33 was shown to die in this game, but there is actually a short novella written by Yonkotaro set after this called The Fire of Prometheus, and P-33 is shown to be alive somehow. Uh, well, he's a robot, so you know, it could be anything. Beep yay! <laughs> but then when you head to the area, you just get a short dialogue scene of the villagers saying they want to live with humans, but they're afraid of near showing up at all. <laughs> Which, 
is fair. When you're fighting the flower shade, which is named Wendy, as in Peter Pan, she is both not entirely aware of what's even going on and also has elements of a combined conscience of all the villagers. Yeah, in general, the more shades in a giant shade, the less stable they become and the more violent and generally confused they are. Yeah, the area is pretty tragic even before you find out the truth and now it's just... Ugh. Yeah, confused is the key word there. But everything up until you get to the ballroom in the Shadow Lord's castle is the same. But then, the shades in the ballroom will say that this is the final bastion of humanity. It turns out those little shade orbs are shade children. Babies. And they are terrified. So when they form up on that wizard thing, it say, don't be afraid, children, come join me. And they become that big boar shade, which is named Goose. Mother Goose, I guess? But that line that Kaine responded to about not needing forgiveness was from Goose saying that they will never be forgiven for what they've done. When Kaine says that, though, Tiran realizes that something about Kaine is changing. He's not entirely sure what it is. You know, he continues trying to egg Kaine on to be violent, but she realizes that she and Tiran both use violence as a crutch for people not liking them. Yeah. Also, in the cutscene where Emil sacrifices himself, we also get a scene of the King of Facade finally killing Goose, and it doesn't revive anymore, but everyone has been fatally wounded. And they get the closest to a heroic sacrifice that anyone gets. Yeah, nobody comes out of this happy. Though they appear to have the least regrets, and again, that's the goodness of the king and the people who follow him, despite their crime against the wolves. Then during the Shadow Lord boss battle, Tron notices that Kaine doesn't have any more hate in her at all. And she says it's because of near everyone, has changed the way she looks at life. Also, you can hear Gestalt News actually pleading with Yona. Like, we went through all this, we have to be together again. <laughs> but when you beat Gestalt Nier, Gestalt Nier doesn't say anything before Replicant Nier kills him. That is a moment of silence. It has a lot more impact this time. I mean, I think Nier realizes it himself at that point. Yeah, that point there wasn't really any turning back, though. Mm-hmm. So after he dies, that moment before he goes into the light, he is upset that you know he failed to bring Yona back and have their life together. But he has a memory of sharing a cookie with Yona in the convenience mart from the beginning. Because she actually didn't get to do it because she got sick. And then when they walk in the light together, you see the rest of the killed shades. It's sort of heavenly space. Though P-33 is there as well, which again, maybe he came back different. But Yona also has Nier's half of the cookie. Then the credits roll, and the French version of Ashes of Dreams plays. The lyrics still rhyme, so they definitely changed them, but that's still pretty cool. And in a bit of light in all this darkness after the credits roll, you see that Emil has survived, and he landed in the desert as just ahead. Happy little skeleton orb. That bit with Nier getting the cookie, calling back to the prologue, that broke me. I was so happy to see him being so because he's just a precious little skeleton baby, and I love him. He's great. Though, like, the first thing he says is he's gonna go look for Nier and Kaine and everyone, so... Well, he'll find Nier, I guess. 
Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Depends on the ending. Maybe not. <laughs> now it pays to discuss one of the main influences on the story of Nier, which was 9-11. I'm never going to get tired of being at disbelief about this, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of an extension of what was going with Drakengard, where in Drakengard, Yokotaro's idea was kind of, you know, they kill all these people and they gloat about that. Yeah, in video games, these fantasy hero narratives. You'd have to be crazy to do that. And then with Nier, instead, it's... You don't have to be crazy. You just have to genuinely believe what you're doing is right, and you will do it. He talks about that in a, a little dev diary about Drakengard 3, and that's a really cool video. Mm-hmm. Spoken with a sock puppet because he's really nervous about drawing his face. Yeah. He always comes in either with the sock puppet or a meal's head. And in a way, it's become kind of a joke that I like Emil a lot, so I'd hope people would still be able to give him a chance, but, you know, he's the guy who made the game. I trust him. <laughs> and it is pretty funny. He does a lot of goofy stuff in Emil's skeleton head. Yeah. Maybe one of the reasons why he can make an emotionally genuine action RPG is because he says things like, I hope Nier Tomta meets your expectations, but don't expect anything. Yep. And a lot of his uh, speeches and stuff, like the GDC chat where he mentioned reverse script writing and photo thinking. He initially tried to read like a screenwriting book, and he said, I didn't get it, maybe I'm just stupid. <laughs> in this talk, in this professional event, you know, I wish he felt had more self-esteem, because, you know, I'd want that for anybody, but that attitude informs a different kind of storytelling. He's a very genuine kind of person, I think. Yeah. So, with ending B, you're now on the route to ending C or D, but to get those instead of ending B when you reach the end game again, you need to collect all the weapons. Some of which you get through side quests. Some of which you buy. This is also a weird tradition in his games. Though, compared to Dragon Guard 1's get all the weapons requirement, this is a cakewalk. I read that LP. That looked really miserable. Yeah, well, it involves doing things that there's no indication of doing, like stand in front of this painting for five seconds. Why would you ever do that in a game where looking at anything isn't a mechanic? <laughs> in this case, though, I actually collected all the weapons by this point, because I'd just done the side quests and things, and I really wanted to get all the weapons. And I think this requirement leaves out the DLC weapons, because that would otherwise be really hard and take a lot of time. It does. Because this came out before the DLC. Yeah. I think I should mention this. Normally, uh, one of the weapons is the Iron Pipe from the prologue. And there's a really cool side quest where uh, you have to get this weird orb thing. And then you go back to the prologue area and kill Shades there. And completing that little event gives you the Iron Pipe. If you don't have the Iron Pipe before you get Ending B, completing Ending B gives you the Iron Pipe. That's how I got it. <laughs> also, I mean, we should mention, because like this is the point where you should be well-equipped to clear the DLC. For each section you clear, you get the one-handed sword, then the two-handed sword, and then a spear for each of the three doors you clear. And also at the end of either the second or the third door, there's a section with enemies who drop a lot of rare upgrade materials. And there are some like sort of unique areas that aren't in the game, or some that you interact with in a way that you wouldn't. Like the very first room is the staircase you run up to get away from Goose, but instead it's you going slowly down this thing. 
and you don't even see the bottom of this room in the regular game. Yeah, the DLC is really interesting. I think my favorite area in the DLC was where you were going through the temple, and it was broken bridges and walkways that you had to go across while the strong enemies were on them. Yeah, you got to hear that sweet boss fight music. Yeah. Also, there's a basketball court. Pretty good. <laughs> when you clear the second and third doors, you unlock outfits. Uh, I didn't know how to equip these. You have to do it from the options menu on the main menu. You can't do it in-game. I was kind of upset about because I finished everything. I didn't know I could do that. But characters' outfits are fine, really. And the ones you unlock are a Kabuki-themed one and a Samurai-themed one. I didn't like them too much. They mix things up. Yeah. If I had decided to choose Ending C and then play through again to get Ending D, I would have really wanted it. But I just watched Ending C on YouTube and chose Ending D. I just reloaded my save from before going to the Shadow Lord's Castle and just sped through that. <laughs> yeah, same. So once you have all the weapons, when you get to the end, Ending A and Ending B could have happened together anyway because they're just different perspectives. But this is where things will diverge. Kaine is walking off. Seems set to be consumed by the Black Scrawl. You know, Sunshine, that Black Scrawl has almost completely taken you over. Yeah, I know. But goddamn, we had fun, huh? Killing and killing and more killing. What a rush! Yeah. Wait! No! No, no, no! It wasn't fun at all! I turned you into a killing machine! I spread evil and chaos around the world! But it all feels so empty now! Why? I don't understand! So he goes berserk and overtakes Kaine's body, and you have a final boss fight against her, which is just the biggest curtain of bullets ever to get through. I'm sad there's no unique music for it, it's just the regular boss theme. Yeah. After you've done enough damage to her with this bullet barrage, Tyrann will make an offer that you can save her, then you have a melee battle. Once you defeat her, he gives you two options. One... You can kill her, and she'll finally die for good. She won't come back to life anymore and have to live as she does. And if you choose this, then the ending version of the theme to play is the Gaelic version of Ashes of Dreams. Nier appears to kiss Kaine and says that they'll always be together, and you can reload the game and start again. Or, Tron offers to let you erase yourself from existence, which will also erase Tron and it will free Kaine, and she will get to live but no one will remember you existed, and no one will remember anything about you. Everything you've done will have just been someone else's work. Kainé's. So this is the thing that was spoiled for me before I played the game, because erasing yourself from existence means wiping your entire save file. It's worth noting that they're like, hey, we're going to erase your save file, are you sure about that? Are you really, really, really sure about that? 
Yeah, a lot of people say it like it just springs it on you, like, oh, you chose ending D, haha, ha, get wrecked. But no, like, it tells you, you can choose ending C if you want, and just choose this again if you want later, if you want to keep playing. You're really only intended to choose ending D after you are completely done with the game. So it's at this point that I pulled up ending C on YouTube. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. Anyways, it's time to finish this. It's worth mentioning that Yokotaro has gone on record saying that ending C is what Father Nier would have chosen, and ending D is what Brother Nier would have chosen. Mm, that makes sense. But when you choose ending D and you say yes to all the prompts, it will show you Grimoire Vice, like that status screen, and everything one by one gets erased from it. And then it deletes your save file, and then the final cutscene plays, which is Kaine talking to Yona and Yona thanks Kaine for defeating the Shadow Lord and saving her. Kaine sees a flash for a second of Nier's face. When Yona asks her what's wrong, she can't quite enumerate it, and she just says, It's like I just found something special. Something very special. And it plays the credits one last time, and you hear the Japanese version of Ashes of Redeems. And when you go through the credits, you'll see on the title screen, the one thing that it does save using the system data is there's now a lunar tier on the title screen. Also, you can't use the same name for Nier anymore. Yeah. So, now I think it's time we discuss the extended material, which will further change the context for everything that happened. <laughs> And is not in the game. But to discuss all that, first, we need to put this game in the context of what it is a actual sequel to. Which is Drakengard 1, which is a PS2 game with a like dark fantasy setting where a character forms a bond with a dragon. And he loses the ability to speak and his life is bonded to the dragons. And they seek revenge against this evil empire which has cultists working for it to unleash these things they call the Watchers. Now, it has five endings... And with each one, things get progressively more disastrous. And the first ending is just, alright, now my dragon's going to be used as the seal to keep these things at bay for all time. That's pretty bad. And that's what the second game is a sequel to. The second, much worse game. Probably because Yokotaro didn't have anything to do with it. For some reason. Yeah, it plays a lot better than one. Like, by a country mile. But the story is... It has a couple of surprises, but nothing else really. Like there's a there's a bisexual guy in it, which was kind of unusual for the time, and that's treated very closely. That's not it. Everyone's British, even if they weren't in the first game. There's some guy who made a pact with death. <laughs> yeah, but with ending D in that game, the seals are broken, and the gods are revealed to the world, and this giant feminine mannequin-esque figure appears. With a legion of these giant babies, man-eating babies from the sky. Big old chompers. And one of your characters who keeps trying to kill the one child member in your party just lets them eat her. And it's really fucked up and weird. Yeah. And in ending D, the child member in your party who has sacrificed his time kills himself and locks all the invading gods in just a sphere of frozen time. A Hershey kiss. <laughs> in ending E, instead, the main character and his 
dragon crash into this thing as it's entering their world, and they both end up in a different world. Ours. After which they have a rhythm duel in the skies over Tokyo. <laughs> They're not dancing or something, you just have to do timed button inputs to cancel out these little energy waves that the boss sends out. Also, you die in one hit. Yeah. This is an ending. You had to get all the weapons to get this, and then all those weird things happening. Once you defeat the god, it dissolves into, like, a pile of salt, and as the dragon is musing that your work is done, the Japanese air defense force blows the dragon out of the sky. The credits roll, and the camera pans down, and the dragon is impaled on Tokyo Tower. And that is the flash of the thing you see for a second in New Replicate. Then you unlock an F-16 instead of a dragon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's... something. <laughs> so it turns out that this, the dead body of this giant god and this dragon, were studied by humans. But it turns out the body of the giant, its weird quasi-salt body, which doesn't quite have the properties of all world salt because it like floats weightlessly and stuff, started infecting people and turning them into pillars of salt, and this was called white chlorination syndrome. Can I mention something stupid? Sure. Most of the weapons that you collect in Nier are the same weapons that you collect in Dragon Guard 1. Yep. Iron Will is directly Himir's finger. It's really weird because that sword is in Dragon Guard 3 and it's called Iron Will there. <laughs> so, after a while though, when trying to seek the cure for white chlorination syndrome, some of the people who get infected instead turn into these red-eyed, white, monstrous creatures called Legion. The leader the red-eye. I don't think it's actually confirmed, but it's 90% certain that that is Kaim, the guy from Drakengard 1. Yep, he's still there, murdering everyone. The Japanese government studies the dragon's body, and in doing so discovers the elementary particle of magic known as Maso. And using this, they develop everything else in the plot. They create the replicants to be their bodies, but also these replicants are immune to white chlorination syndrome and can fight those battles for them. And additionally, they create those books, and those are meant to be part of the program that will save the human race. At first I thought it was weird that modern-day humans would make magic books, but in a way I think it makes a kind of sense to say that the inevitable result of making things with magic is a book. There were 13 of these books. So it turns out that Nier, the original, the book he was given, Grimoire Noir, was one of many that were made. There were many copies made. But when most people touched them, they would immediately relapse and be on the way to becoming shades. In this case, Nier just happened to be a match for this thing, which made him a stable gestalt who could generate Maso that would keep the other gestalt stable. Because it turns out the Black Scrawl that will eventually kill off a replicant happens when the original relapses, which is why Yona is sick in both versions. That whole time skip was spent with the governments of the world using these replicants to fight off the Legion and defeat Red Eye, which survived like a nuclear weapon. But then later, a different replicant soldier went to the site where Red Eye died and inadvertently brought it back to life. 
Like, this is two games worth of backstory happening here. Basically, that replicant was trying to resurrect one of their loved ones, and in wishing for their loved one to come back, instead, they did come back as the Red Eye, and then immediately killed them. Yeah. There were a bunch of different crusades, and there were plots involving child soldiers because of a faulty promise that they would be more resistant to white chlorination syndrome, like the drug that would prevent it was more effective on children, so a lot of stuff to go into. We'll link Grimoire in here, but there are some things that we want to discuss on here, and I'll let me take it. So, Grimoire Rubrung, Grimoire Weiss, and Grimoire Noir were originally a group of child soldiers working for the Hamlin organization, which was basically sent to destroy the uh, Legion because of the previous mention that children are better able to take in loose forays and last longer. That ended up apparently being a lie. <laughs> and Hamlin organization refers to the Pied Piper of Hamlin. Yeah. So, 13 child soldiers were brought into a room as part of a secret mission that would have freed them from their service, as they were told, and were left to kill each other because each one was handed a different tome. And were told, so yeah, kill each other with that tome, and two of you get to go free. Weiss and Rubrum were a pair of girls. Weiss had saved Rubrum earlier against the Legion, so they were kind of friends and they spoke the same language, so they were able to communicate where most of the other kids in the area did not. Whenever someone would be killed in that room, they would get dragged into a book. Rubrum was the third to last one killed. Weiss was the final survivor, and Noir was the second to last survivor. Though they technically survived, they still got absorbed into the book anyway, and they were never going to be let out. So that book you fought in the library was in fact someone who Vice once knew, but couldn't remember. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't one of those two most important books, so she couldn't speak or anything. Yep. There's also one extra ending that wasn't included in the game, known as Ending E. Grimoire Nier describes an extra ending. It takes place after ending D, where Kainé's forgotten about Nier, but at the same time, she knows something's wrong and that something's kind of missing there. And to vent, she goes to the Forest of Myth to kill Shades, and finds that instead of being a forest anymore, it's now kind of a hybrid plant-machine thing. A young boy presents himself to her, and she immediately chops his head off. But the young man continues to explain that they're a structure kind of like Grimoire Weiss that is designed to oversee the replicant and the shawl process. Tells her it will help her remember if she can keep fighting. Like she's presented with P-33 and someone that's familiar but that she does not know, also a clone of herself. And Emil then shows up with an extra pair of arms? Yeah, he rebuilt his body. Good job. Even better. 
eventually they defeat the clones, the clones melt, and they realize that the tree is kind of the source controlling it, so they go to destroy the inside of the tree. And inside of the tree, Kaine is embraced by the white light, and she hears the voice of someone telling her to go back, which pisses her off. And she seems to know it's near at that point, and starts going off on him, telling him not to make decisions for her, because she'll decide for herself, and of course cursing at him. Then she gets a push from someone, the light fades, and she emerges on top of a giant technological flower with the body of Nier, except significantly younger. It is a very bizarre ending. Yeah. It sounds pretty wild. <laughs> also, I think the implication is that the Great Tree in the Forest of Myth was a supercomputer. Yep. So the crystals it had that were the memories of the world were probably some form of holographic memory. That makes sense. Pretty weird. I can understand why they didn't actually end the game with that, because it's... Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it would have been a boss rush. Yeah. And also the cost of adding a playable kind of... <laughs> Now that that's all uh, out of the way. So, the action of killing the Shadow Lord by Nier sets in motion the supposed extinction of mankind, because there's no longer a source of Maso to keep any gestalts from relapsing. And that seemed to be where the story ended, and in one sense, it is really depressing. It's the end of humanity, but remember the last words you hear out of Kaine. I found something really special. Because... In a world where everyone is a victim, that was created by these people who tried to gain power in addition to saving themselves from this catastrophe, it really was kind of inevitable that something like this would happen. They manipulated the original Nier to make sure he'd keep giving them Maso while promising to cure his daughter, which they didn't do, which made him take actions into his own hands which led to the replicant near swearing revenge on him and eventually killing him. This was all their fault. So having these characters who can find something to like hang on to in a world like that is the best that's going to come to them, and they do. It is also worth noting that Emil would live no matter what because he's immortal, and there's actually a CD drama where he becomes a mecha and fights space aliens. <laughs> That's great. Speaking of aliens, that might be the hook that drives into Nier Automata. Yep. Yeah. So, for a while, that was the end of it. Up until the Miracle E3, where Nier Automata was announced, Shenmue 3 was announced, Final Fantasy VII Remake was announced. It was unreal, really, that all these things were announced together. But there it was, and details have come forth about near Automata, and that it stars androids who were apparently sent to reclaim Earth from robots, because yeah, actually those still exist, but sent by humans living on the moon. Yeah, one of the things that some uh, extraneous material says is Gestalts and Replicants finally learn to work together when they are under threat by aliens. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a pretty interesting direction. The ways that Yoko Taro let people down the passive in games that play poorly. So what do you do about that? 
well, you make this episode another easy six degrees of separation game with the Vanquish episode, and you hire someone from Platinum Games to handle the comeback. I'm really excited for that, because from what I hear, everybody who's working on it at Platinum was a big fan of the original Nier. Yep, it basically has almost all my favorite figures in the industry working on it. Because it's got Yoko Taro, it's got Platinum Games, it also has Akihiro Yoshida doing the design, and Keiichi Okabe doing the music. Yeah, and of course, crucially, they've left in board drifting and also added elk jumping. <laughs> Back when I originally wanted to do this episode, which faced a whole spate of delays, sorry. One of the things when this game news originally came out is I wasn't even sure if it was an RPG or not, but it's also that. On one hand, I kind of worry that people will use that game as an excuse to trash on this one, because in a lot of ways it's going to be better. But the other thing is, I don't think Yoko Taro is going to do what he did again. Because there were twists in the other games of his, but the twist in Dragon Guard 1 is not the same as Nier. I'm really glad that I can have that to look forward to. Yeah, me too. One thing I hope is that they keep some of the elements I did like about Nier, like actually having weird characters. That's kind of big for me. We didn't really go into that, actually. So, yeah, when it comes to localization, there's one thing I don't like about this game, and that happens to be that the English localization removed any mention of Emil being gay. In the Japanese version, Emil was intended to have a crush on Nier, and like, in Grimoire Nier, they have an interview. So the interviewer asks, one theory was that Emil developed feminine feelings and like Nier as a result of fusing with his sister, and Yokotaro was just like, no, Amiibo's gay! <laughs> I think I have a feeling I know why they took that out, and it's because Nier is a dad and Emil is a child. Further into the interview, they say, there's always seemed to be some characters with unusual sexual preferences in Yoko's works, and he's like, how you define unusual is the question. If we look around, we can definitely see homosexual. <laughs> Few in number they may be. People like that exist. It's simply the way the world works. They're labeled with normal, unusual, and compared quite often, but the difference between people with certain sexual preferences lies purely in number. Some are quite abundant, some are not, but we're all in the same world. I never intended for them to appear as special. Yeah, he's a cool dude. Yeah. I also appreciated that Kaine was intersex. That's something I never would have expected to see in a game that isn't porn. Yeah, I mean, even with Nier giving her a kiss in the end, it's not played up in any way. It's like, oh, so weird or freaky or something. Like, it's a person he had a connection with. Yeah. To anyone who sexualized more so than the games, like Yafit did, who felt that way, reacted that way to Kaine, and then found out that she was intersex, if that affected your view of it, you felt like tricked or cheated or something, that's really on you. Yeah, they did not fetishize her being intersex. They obviously barely brought it up, and that was another thing that was kind of removed more in the localization, but it never came off like they were trying to make that something sexually exotic or like a fan service thing. It's just part of her character. Yeah. So, that's near. I really want to do this episode because I've never really quite had the experience with this game I've had with other games. Even if I had an emotional response to other games, this is the closest a game has come to making me cry. It's not the game's fault that I didn't cry, I actually just have kind of a tough time getting all the way there, but <laughs> I felt 
that way. God, this game had such an impact on me. Like, I brought up the scene with Emil. His transformation that really affected me is the trans person. The way Nier responded, I appreciate that they didn't treat any of the characters like they were just outright evil. And even when they did terrible things, they were often shown to still also be good people sometimes. Even Tyron, at least in the end, came through. All the ways in which he's terrible really proved to be empty and were only done because he had that power over someone. Yeah, and they're using that as a coping strategy more than just being inherently evil. In a world that's really, truly ruined. Yeah. I just really love that aspect about it. Instead of trying to have clear, obvious good guys and clear, obvious bad guys, both Nier's had their own reasons to be doing what they did that were justified, and you can't really say that either one of them was right or wrong. Yeah, because they have the same mission. <laughs> yeah. That's something I really love about the series. I just, I'm fond of the game. I think it came at me at a pretty important time, which was when I was a teenager. So it kind of helped me shape some of my worldviews, maybe helped me to be a bit more thoughtful. But I'm really glad I played it, even if I only played through it once. Yeah. Obviously, I played it much more recently. and I think that a lot of things I was going through in my life at the time, it helped me cope with feelings of loss in a way. Not that I wouldn't have managed if I hadn't played near, but it gave me a different perspective on it. Hmm. Can't say that for a lot of games now, can you? Yeah. I also do appreciate how it uses the fact that it's a game to get the player to act how they want and approach things in a certain way. They use the general hero story that almost every game goes by to get you to assume certain things that aren't really stated. Then they play with that, and also the way they play with genre and different styles of games in the process. Yeah. It feels like a story that could only exist in a game. I feel the same way about it. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. Next one's gonna try and be about something a lot simpler, <laughs> and maybe it can get done sooner <laughs> than a matter of months. I can't wait for Dragon's Dogma. <laughs> We'll talk about that for an eternity. <laughs> I probably should get around getting ready for that one at some point. So, thank you, Michal, again for joining me on this episode. And thanks, Zane. No problem. Me, where can I find you? <laughs> Even though this is like repeated like three times on different media. <laughs> well, uh, you can find me on Twitter as Sarah Ottenberg, or on Tumblr as literally the Terminator. A lot of good screenshots. A lot of good character Ooh, yeah. designs. Character creators. I love breaking that shit. If Black Desert Online hasn't given you nightmares yet, <laughs> you haven't looked hard enough. And how about you, Zane? You can find me on Twitter at ZaneZero. That's me. Sometimes I'm funny. Sometimes I tell jokes. Mostly I just shitpost about everything. <laughs> <laughs> also, you most of all are very good at pulling out anime and the screenshots for whatever reply. <laughs> I have too many of them. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, still at BeamsplashX. I'm still finding ways to post jokes that are just really stupid and make people angry with how dumb they are. 
is all I want out of life, really. <laughs> so you can follow me there if you'd like. You can also follow the show at ThoughtABTGames on Twitter. We've had some streams that calls for responses and stuff like that. Also, to be fair to the two negative emails we got, most people didn't email because all they had to say in response to that tweet asking for emails was, Near is good. I like it a lot. <laughs> you can follow the show there. You can find the website at wethoughtaboutgames.com, which will take you to the Tumblr page. That's also where we'll have the show notes and links to the bonus episodes and places where you can stream or download the episodes. Also, where we'll post up the stream recordings. The Second Fantasy Star stream and the Resident Evil stream are still, I think, really good. So yeah, that should about wrap it up. Thanks everyone, and keep thinking. Bye! Good night. Good night.